We're live here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by the fine fellows here of I Was a Teenage Zombie. We have George Seminara, <laughs> Craig Sabin. Hey! Oh, and Gregory Lamberson. <laughs> Hello. 35 years ago, this movie came out. Oh, wow. Which means we shot it 33 years ago. 37 years ago. 37 years ago. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, we shot it after <laughs> it came out. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a first. I believe. And there was no lawsuit. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so when's the last time all three of you have been together? 37 years ago. Pretty much. Yeah. Robert and I have worked on a few things. You know, he was in Slime City Massacre. Um, George and I are Facebook friends, but haven't seen each other face to face. Easily since before I left New York City. Now, uh, George was telling us that he watched the movie for the first time since it came out. Yep. So, what's how? What did you think of it? Well, I was shocked that, um, like, we used the place where my parents had their uh, first date with their ill-fated marriage of six or seven years. Um, but we—that's where we, um, where the where the gang hang out at Hinch's um, soda shop, and then I got we, that location. There you go. It was a weird thing. That was Bay Ridge, right? Yeah, yeah the Bay Ridge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, where I learned how to ride a two wheeler is the alleyway Hunts Lane in Brooklyn, where uh, Mussolini gets caught by the uh, by the other gangsters, and. Uh, where With he, a cigarette right. flick from uh, that's right from the, heaven, yeah, from yeah, from Salamette, he twists his head right around. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, and uh, so that was kind of weird. Um, See, in my basement before I renovated it, um, it was uh, it had enthusiasm. I go, I'll go for that. Um, what about you guys? What's your memory? Since I just have a fresh one. Yeah, Craig. Uh, I call you Robert. I don't know. He's calling no, you, you can call you can call me. My wife calls me Craig. Okay, that's, okay. that's my that's my name. So uh, middle name. Know, call, yeah, middle name. Middle so name. calling me Craig uh, gives you certain privileges. All right. Um, All right okay. Which uh, going really which, well here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You <laughs> nice. just got lucky. Um, Every Christmas. Yeah. My um, my uh, my memory of the movie, and I haven't I haven't seen it in a couple of years. Uh, but I remember it standing up pretty well. Um, you know, the jokes are still working. The sort of campy aspect of it is working. The soundtrack is is Soundtrack's way, yeah. way better than, you uh, know, yeah, movie just, yeah, just awesome. Um, and of course, you know, every time I every time I watch it, I'm sort of taken back in time to when we we're shooting it, um, which was, you know, overall a very fun time for me, uh, you know, so. I, I just really enjoy it's a it's a fun movie to watch and I'm I'm not in it too much so I don't get too soured on it. <laughs> oh, how we have yourself, Greg, both as a movie and the experience, uh, you know, watching it because I think it would be hard uh, to watch it as a movie when you make it and to separate that from your memories of making it. It's totally a home movie for me at this point. And I remember everyone in it as looking like they did at that time. So I don't know who these two gentlemen are <laughs> that we Good. hired to play cast members many years later. 
I, I was going to say, there's just too much hair in that movie. There's, there's too much hair. So much hair. Not, en- not enough scalp. <laughs> yeah. There should have been more scalp. That, that, yes. That's definitely how it should have been. Much more scalp. <laughs> Actually, I, ha- I had a memory, though. Um, I had a friend who I was at the HB studio with when I was pretending to be an actor. And he came in to audition for the part of the bird. And um, he went on to some success, unlike, you know, the rest of us. Um, it was Chris Noth. And he couldn't ride a motorcycle, and he didn't know where he could get one. So the next guy who came in for the job, he was like, hey, whatever you need, Mo- motorcycle, I got it. You know, everything. And he got the part, you know, because he could ride a motorcycle, of which he does not ride a motorcycle in the movie. He just kind of glides to a stop. and Because the motorcycle, the motorcycle didn't work. Yeah, the motorcycle <laughs> didn't work, so we had to push him. Yeah, and we had to do a uh, post sound on everything. <laughs> but that bird, the guy who played the bird, Kevin Nagel, he went on to to do quite a few things. Yeah, he, he played plays... a, he played a cop on Law and Order. He played yeah. the villain in Law and Order. He played the dead guy on Law and Order. He did a lot he, of Law and Order. He played the Irish mafia guy who puts the hit out on battling Jake Murdoch in the Daredevil TV series. He's played oh, a number. That's of right. That's right. Guys. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Well, as someone not involved in the movie and watching it again uh, for the interview, I really enjoy it. Not just because the three of you guys are here, but no, I think it's really fun. Um, I think it's cool that it has like an it feel it has like an innocence to the movie, even though it's about zombies and murder and there's like a weird uh, rape death scene. But it's uh, it feels like like a you know it it doesn't feel feel like a mean spirited movie. It it's it's innocent. It's fun and. I, I thought it really worked. It's almost like a dead end kids movie, without well, a doubt. I mean, we're doing every shtick. Yeah, every yeah, shtick no. available. Who do. used to say shtick a hundred times a day? Mm. <laughs> Big Al from The Rock. It's <laughs> shtick. Speaking it's of somebody who went on to do stuff, <laughs> strange stuff. Big Al from The strange Rock stuff. was uh, either Rosencrantz or Lieberman. I think he was Lieberman, right? Right. The heavier guy. Yeah. Um, who has a small part in two of my films. He's a video store owner in Slime City and the coroner in Undying Love for what he was adamant that I pay him. I said, I don't have any money. He said, listen, he insisted that I give him like a 20 just so he felt like a paid actor. <laughs> but he went on to do he played the strangest character on Boardwalk Empire. Oh, he's in he appeared wow. several times on the boardwalk driving a golf cart and would always stop and shoot the shit with Steve Buscemi. It's like a role that if there was an arc, I missed it. But he was also credited in there as the Yiddish dialogue coach. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. He do some heavy Yiddish in real life. I bumped into him and his, his partner, his wife, I'm not sure. And, um, they were arguing on the subway platform in Yiddish, so I had to listen in <laughs> because, you know, coming from the Lower East Side, I have a little smattering of Yiddish. So I'm listening to these two like bicker. And then he looks over at me and he goes, oh, hello. Because <laughs> he's become so like actorly. Oh, like, yes. He like, oh, of course, he like, this is my friend George. We were in Zero Mustel. <laughs> his, yeah. his death scene is amazing in the movie. A the highlight best. for sure. And it immediately precedes my dialogue scene. True. Mm. That's me oh, asking to buy the weed for the big high school dance, Neil. Oh, I did. I actually Mr. thought I caught you at the very beginning, just kind of standing yes. in the in the grass. And I actually did not pick that up that that was you later on in the movie. I had mm-hmm. a speaking role. 
you were you were perfect. You were perfect. And I was pressed into service on the day because the guy they cast didn't show up. Chris Noth. Chris Noth. No, no. <laughs> no so also he, Chris Noth was he, John Michaelakis, I guess, or whatever he wants to be called right here, there. Um, he the he, he said, well, he's really old. And I say, he's like three years older than me. And he's like, <laughs> oh, but he's really old. I mean, you're supposed to look like you're in high school. I said, well, if you make him the bird, then it'll be funny because he's so much older than we are. <laughs> like, what? But yeah, it was like the couldn't ride a motorcycle and couldn't get us one, working or not. <laughs> so, uh, working Greg, dazed and confused. <laughs> Greg, you said you got the location for the, for the, like the malt shop. Like, how, how did you get that? Um, I used to eat there all the time because I lived two blocks away in a little studio apartment where Robert Craig eventually lived with me as well. And I took it upon myself uh, to find this location. And then because that went over so well, I took it upon myself to cast the role of Chucky. And Robert was not the first person I went to for this. When I got involved, I brought my my uh, friend Peter Clark on. I, I was production manager. He was assistant camera. And I recommended an actor who worked with me at one of the movie theaters. This guy was sort of uh, a wannabe Eddie Murphy. And the audition went horribly because he couldn't read, literally. He was illiterate. And we had to sit here, like we were sweating as he was trying to get through two or three words. So I felt like my credibility was shot. And I said, okay, I have to get these guys somebody who can at least read. And that's how I brought Robert into the show. Yes, the yeah, reader. That's a ringing endorsement, Greg. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Reader. One of the best red rolls ever. Fantastic <laughs> variety. Four stars. What every word stars. pronounced correctly. <laughs> what correct. a reader. I mean, there are some. You know, you, you do a lot of definitions there. Exactly. And, and do so them fast. Do them fast. You do really very snappy that scene's great by the way uh with the uh with the policeman when you're being interrogated that whole scene is very fun <laughs> that guy was steve reedy and i went to him for slime city and he said well what's it about and i told him he said ah i don't want to do any more of this horror shit <laughs> so i cast somebody else <laughs> <laughs> he had great delivery i like this guy yeah that was a performance boy yeah so how did you get involved, George? Um, well, he, 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 Greg let it out of the bag. Pretty much every single person at one time or another worked at the same movie theater chain. We all worked there at one point or another. And we would talk a lot about movies. So uh, Jim, who has the solo writing credit, and uh, John Michaels and I, uh, would go to see a lot of movies together and we knew everybody. So in those days we didn't pay for any other movie theater, right? If you want to see a movie anywhere in the city, you told your manager, I want to go there. And then once you had the relationship, which I was able to milk 20 years after I'd stopped working in the movie theater, if I saw somebody I knew working the door and I wanted to see the movie, I was like, Hey man, how, what's going on? And they'd look at me and say, Oh yeah, come in. But, um, we all we worked together and we watched movies together. And so we started talking about, like, what could we make? And we had worked on a film. John and I had worked on a film um, called Splatter University, where the school colors are blood red. Classic. And um, 
we started talking about this film. And um, Jim didn't want to work on it if he couldn't get solo writing credit, which is why there's the weird credits on the thing. He was very serious about his writing. And uh, every week I would give him 20 or 30 pages of dialogue and scenes that needed to be in the film. Um, and so at one point we had like a 400 page script and then pared it down to 90 pages. And no, it was never 90 pages. Well, what it is that? 120 pages when I met John Michaels to make Xerox copies. And I told him it was too long. He said, oh, no, oh, no. it's snappy. It's going to go like this. And that's why we shot two huge sequences that didn't make it into the film. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. But it, I have a 96 page one. They cut. They didn't show you yeah. some scenes then. No, no, we did. And then, of course, <laughs> if you remember, Anytime we got into a problem where we thought the narrative was wrong or we were wearing the wrong clothing, we would immediately write a scene to fix it, which we shot it. And I don't Did you ever see the assembly edit? No, it was like three hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> it was it was embarrassing. It was like it was like a Scorsese film. You know, it was like just oh my the Irish God, man. so many scenes. No, it wasn't yeah. just yeah. like this. No, no. <laughs> Some of the scenes are pretty peppy, but. You know, when you see 12 scenes where the dialogue is peppy peppy and you only needed one, it's not that peppy. Yeah. And uh, actually, Greg, how did you get involved? Like how early on? So my story, Neil, and it dovetails with what George says, is that Robert and I became friends at Cinema One on Third Avenue and 59th Street in Manhattan, which we called oh, the cinemas. I thought you were the Beekman, George. Were you the cinemas, too? Oh. I, I was just, cinemas were my like main theater. Yeah. Right. So George was before me. He wasn't there when we were there, just as he went to SVA before me. So we have the, we just missed each other. Um, but Robert and I worked there. And on my first night, my very first night on the job, having just moved to New York City, I worked with a girl named Alice Martin, who was Jim Martin, the eventual screenwriter credited person's sister. And uh, one of the staff members, Roberto Gomez, Robert, you, you Christian scientist, you, he was teasing <laughs> her saying that movie's never going to be finished. And so I'm like, what movie? And it's Splatter University. So I'm like, I'm so jazz that on my first night on the job in my new city, I've met somebody who's in a slasher film. Like, this is what it's all about for me. I was so excited. What did game for? And then... Uh, a year later, I was working at a different theater in Times Square, and I was walking by the Criterion. And back then, they used to have these, these upright boxes that were like phone booths, except they had VCRs in them. And they would show trailers on the sidewalk. And in Times Square, you can imagine these really loud audience would, would gather around and judge the trailers. It was the equivalent of everybody watching a trailer online the day it drops, except you're standing on the street with people and getting their reactions. It was so cool. And there I am looking at George Seminara before we got to know each other. So I saw the movie. And then maybe another year later, I'm still working at the same theater. John Michaels came. And as George explained, he was schmoozing his way in through a free ticket through the ticket taker who introduced him to me as the big director. So I'm like, oh, what did you work on? He said, I, I was assistant director on this movie, Splatter University. Oh, you worked on that? I saw that. Oh, you saw that? Back then, movies were pretty obscure, and they had their little run in a theater, and that was it. So if somebody saw your film, and they weren't related to you somehow, <laughs> that 
stroked your Huge. ego. So he was very excited. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm about to direct my own first film. And I said, oh, I got to work on it. So, well, I can't pay you. I said, I'll quit my job. I don't care. And so I brought my friend in. And that night we went to a production meeting. I think John and Jim were uh, roommates at this decrepit building in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn or Queens? In Brooklyn. Oh, in Brooklyn. Oh, that was a horrible apartment. Yeah, it was like an isolated so building in, in a deserted block. It was the, the setting for a movie. And we had a production meeting with way too many beers. And, and that's how I got on. And I didn't meet George until we were on set. And George, I will tell you now, the weird thing about dichotomy about the crew is there were all those older guys, slightly older, obviously, who had some experience. And then there were the rest of us, me, Robert. Pete Clark, Dora, who worked as an assistant director, who were there to learn. And uh, of the older guys, probably because you were an actor and had some downtime, George was by far the most accessible guy and was always sharing stories as he does and giving me little set pointers. And after the film, got me a couple of uh, corporate PA gigs. So, George, I have actually always looked to you as sort of a mentor. And that's the truth. <laughs> Um, and I've always tried on my films or on films I've worked on with other people to look out for those people who've never been on set before and to try and help them all along. Thank you. Pay it back. Pay it forward. That's what it's all about. Uh, and along the same line, then, I'd like to blame you for what my life has become. Oh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a married fellow. Her life is not any better. Trust me. At least you made feature films, you know. I make documentaries, so it's a whole different world. But you've won an Emmy. I have. And a Peabody. And you directed the Ramones a bunch of times. So. Yep. Oh, a bunch of times. Well, well, also, well not that the, the Ramones uh, music is in it, but uh, do you know how like they, they got so many like cool uh, musicians to do the music for, for the movie? Richard Hirsch. That's right. right. Ricky, oh, Hirsch. Hirsch. Ricky Hirsch. Ricky Hirsch, <laughs> who is a who's trying to get a movie made of... Um, of Buster Keaton and Fatty Arbuckle's time together in Brooklyn. Oh, a romance. A, ro a love story. <laughs> and um, he knew a guy that ended up being somebody I knew, and his name was Robert Singerman. And Robert Singerman had a very kind of dodgy career as a band manager. He was a great guy, but literally, you can ask any band that ever was in New York, if he managed them, and they will say, yes, he did. R.E.M., he managed them for like a month. Um, James Brown for like a half a year. Um, you know, King Sonny Day and his Juju men. Yes, for one tour, he managed them. You know, he just managed everybody. And at the time, we coalesced to needing a soundtrack deal. You know, like that was the way we were going to pay for the music. Because music can be very, very pricey and time consuming. So we're going to pay for the music by getting tracks that weren't used on records, mostly. Mm. And so all those bands he managed at that exact moment in time. Did so, they pay huh? for those songs, though? I thought it was like 50% of the budget was the movie and 50% was the soundtrack because they were talking about the soundtrack the whole time. It was something they, they at least had planned out from the beginning. Right. The, the idea was that we're going to have cool music. We didn't know what the cool music was going to be. And when Bob Singerman got involved, he called up his buddies at Enigma Records. And Enigma said, oh, we'll put it out. It'll be great. 
right? And so that's how we got the money to pay the artists. And when I did my, I did a film called Billy Strayhorn Lush Life, and I needed a soundtrack and I couldn't afford the exorbitant prices that the Duke Ellington people were going to pay me to do new versions, you know, to do, you know, use the uh, old versions, recordings, um, that I just recorded the whole album myself. And I got big name jazz artists. Elvis Costello sings a song on it just so I could do the exact same thing. So the record company paid for all the music, paid for all the rights for the music for us to use in the film, which is what we did there, except for one freaking thing. The song I sing and play on and wrote, it's only on the movie, not on the freaking soundtrack, because you can only fit a certain right. amount of records on a, you know, songs on a, on a record. Fuckers. Before, well, I remember before you were CDs. upset at the time because mm-hmm. I remember you were upset at the time because Ricky had one song he wanted to use and you wrote that song specifically for the movie. And for, for a little while, it looked like they weren't going to use it. And instead, they they spliced them. Right. They played half right. of each one in the end credits. Correct. And I think the lesson here, Neil, is everyone wants to be a musician. Nobody wants to do what they're doing. Everyone just yeah. wants to. Wants to jam. They want to jam. Right. And all jam. musicians want to be in the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We want, we want everything. Mm-hmm. I think everybody wants everything all the time. <laughs> That's the moral of the story for today. Yes. Yeah. Now, Apologies the, to Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> how about the theme song itself? Then it becomes a, a video that plays on MTV. Well, I play, I take blame for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had been, I had started, I, I'd been taking photographs of bands and music videos were kind of new. So bands would come up to me and goes, Hey man, can you do my music video? And I would say, yeah, sure. You know, without knowing how to do it. And so I had made about 10 at that point. And, um, John, there had been another version, but they didn't, they didn't shoot. They didn't understand how to make it. So they didn't have any playback. So it was just them miming to music that wasn't playing. So they, it looked like the band that's in the movie, in the I was Teenage Zombie, the band sequence where they're obviously playing one song. Each player is playing a different song to the song that's playing, and to each other. And so I we I think we had uh, we managed to cobble together about eleven hundred dollars, and we did that video for eleven hundred dollars. And I got all these go-go dancers to be in the video. And they just, they were like giddy for the Flash Stones. And it was just shocking that uh, it was on MTV as much as it was. I think it was because uh, the singer for the Flesh Stones had a show called The Cutting Edge mm. on Sunday nights. Did, did that help the movie, um, having, a, having a music video on MTV? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> what do you guys think? Because um, I mean, no, it's been a fun movie. curiosity to find years later. Yeah, I think it was um, I think it was a a timing issue, right? The movie came out, then the record came out, then the video came out. So there was like, you couldn't see the movie in the theater anymore. It hadn't come out on video yet. The record came out, and then there was all the nonsense with the record, and then the video came out like two months later. And so it was, that's why I was surprised that it got added to MTV. Uh, 
William McConnell in the chat wants to know if uh, you guys still talk to some of the other cast members like uh, uh, Mussolini and the bird. Well, well Mussolini died. Uh, he was he was like 60 when we did the movie, I think. Uh, a lot older than he looked. I it was all those marriage. I get your marriage. Either I quote him to this day, either or, or either. either. <laughs> <laughs> or you're very naive. You're very naive. <laughs> yeah, he passed, right? Oh, yep. that's unfortunate. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But George has been in touch with a number of these folks, right, George? I have a couple of people anyway. Um, I picked up the bird in my car one day. He was trying to get a cab. I picked him up. He didn't know who I was until I dropped him off. That's oh, really my story. It's perfect. Uh, one of the one of the gals in the film was Linnea Benson, who played Hildy. And I had gotten Mike Lackey, who's known for street trash, to do the special effects because he was in my class at SVA. And originally, he and John had agreed that they were just going to do Incredible Hulk green makeup. And then on set, Pete Clark said, what? That's it? Why don't you put some oatmeal on his face or something? So they did put oatmeal on him. That's what the rotting skin was, oatmeal. <laughs> the, the, the big rape scene, you know, oh. twists her legs up. Yeah. Um, Linnea was the actress, and uh, he was really enthusiastic, spraying the blood. And when we called cut, when John called cut, uh, he wanted to keep going. And at that point, she blew up and she said, cut it out, you misogynistic twerp. Yes. <laughs> you misogynist twerp. <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever heard the word misogynistic use, and I had to look it up. Um, but it was tense, and uh, he backed off, and we resumed shooting, but it, it stayed tense. Well, after we wrapped shooting, I ran into her on the street like a month later, and she was with two good-looking preppy guys. You know, they were. she was out on the town with two fellas, and I said, oh, hey, Linnea. And she turned around and she looked at me with a blank stare. Like she just turned dead. She was like, yes, no recognition at all. I just said, well, never mind. Well, 10 years or so later, I was working at a video store on the Upper West Side called Movie Place. And she was a customer there. And we had both put on a few pounds. We were no longer our uh, athletic selves. And she came with her boyfriend, still very nice looking. And uh, I'm taking care of her. And I, I see the name. So I didn't even recognize her. I said, oh. Linnea, we, we worked together on a film like 10 years ago. And she looked at me. Now she's got emotion. She goes, oh, was I a bitch? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. She goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And we had the nicest conversation. And I look forward to seeing her anytime she came into the store. But it's weird when, when someone you've worked with just totally doesn't recognize you. And it's not like it's two years later. It's a short period of time later. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, what was the other girl's name? Um, who played? Gwen. Yeah, Gwen, Gwen. Drushel, right? Yeah. She was always she, knitting on set. Yeah. Well, um, I would bump into her all the time because she lived near me in the East Village, and um, she was Glenn Close's body double on like six movies. Right. That was her her thing. Cool. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, uh, Craig, do you keep in touch with anyone? I don't. I, I I did. I did take out a restraining order on three or four of them. But apart from that, <laughs> uh, Greg Greg was my contact to the film, and and you know I've I've been in touch with Greg over the years, uh, but I've not been in touch with uh, really anyone else. I I think I see him on Facebook every once in a while, but 
I'm from Florida and Facebook is a real problem for me to get on because um, everyone's crazy there. Uh, so, you know, I just I just backed off social media generally and I haven't I haven't really been in touch with anyone. True. Uh, William also says uh, to, to him, it's uh, by far the greatest com horror comedy of all time. <laughs> it's it's you know, yeah, exactly. It's 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 I feel like it's a precursor to Shaun of the Dead, like that kind of a that kind of a thing. Uh, but one of the things I like about the movie is, uh, you know, the scenes are very exquisitely constructed and comedically constructed so that there's there's lots of, you know, twists and unexpected things that go in in various directions. But it's not, um, you know, it's not just to keep the movie moving forward. It's to it's to provide a little entertainment value. And, you know, I think it succeeds. I It's a it's a fun movie. I agree. All of the boy scenes, like the fly scene, I got to tell you, we shot that fly scene like eleven times. We wanted to make sure that we we're all going, you know, with the as goofy as possible, all looking in different directions as this fly zooms around. Yeah, and then and then and then somebody says, "Oh, let's have let's have Chucky look at the fly, and everyone else be one step behind." So you know, and that wound up being the cut that made it into the movie. We were improvising bits, you know, on the Shtick. on the set. Shtick. We're improvising. Shtick. Shtick. What the hell's wrong with you? Don't you know? It's stick. I think the whole group they seem like a, a real group of friends. Like they actually know each other, and uh, there's like a chemistry there, and I think that definitely adds to it. Which I think if we all that's got along not there, really well. it, yeah. it definitely takes away from the movie. Yeah, there's William, no have you seen Killer Rack? I have, yeah. No, William, oh. who said I was a teenage zombie is by far his favorite horror comedy. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> favorite, I see. Favorite. <laughs> yeah. He also he also mentioned that that um that George had returned his phone call back in 2004 and he he never thanked him and he and he was stunned by this. Well, George is a lonely man. <laughs> My life sucks. I'm so lonely. <laughs> uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy McGuire says he watched it for the first time on HBO Max. It's so much fun, which we should mention. You can watch it on HBO Max. For like seven years. It was, it was bizarrely acquired by the Criterion Channel. Yeah, it was on the Criterion Channel for years. And uh, well, they're still the ones who then licensed it to uh, HBO Max. I was on a, a Criterion Channel Facebook thread or something where somebody was complaining about some of the dogs that they release. And they were talking about how you don't realize that sometimes we have to buy films in a package. And suddenly things were clicking to me why the oh. Criterion Channel would, would specifically choose this film. Because it's not what you would expect from the Criterion Channel. I'm just curious as to why, you know, like, what other films were in that package that they purchased Teenage well, Zombie? <laughs> can I? I can share. I oh, can great. great. I'd love now to hear the that. story can be told. We all worked at a movie theater company, and the company's called Cinema Five, and they were started by some of the partners of what was known as the Janus Collection. Right. And Janus, that collection, and what they were able to get by selling the long-term leases on the movie theaters, became the Criterion Collection. And Criterion existed originally for laser discs. So... As I, I joke to my friends on Facebook that uh, we made the movie for basically what the fi five of us have in our pockets right now, the four of us have in our pockets right this second was the budget of that movie, basically. And we didn't have that much money. So we ended up asking the people at the movie theater company if they could give us some money. And they did. But, you know, 
they've been in the movie business for a long time and nobody gives anything away for free. Uh. And so they had first dibs on it and uh, they got and they it. took it and they took it. Okay, cool. George, I remember you being a funny guy. Oh, once that I was sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but <laughs> but everything about the independent film distribution business is sad. That's that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. I may be finding that out myself currently, but yeah, the what was there any issues uh, throwing Mussolini to the river, uh, either by by just the actually throwing him in the river or like any people around like, hey, what are you guys doing? He was a gung ho guy. I mean, he was up for anything. The eel the was fish his was his idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike Lackey played a role in the opening of the film. He plays a character named either Lloyd Kaufman or Michael Hertz. Some of these guys had worked for Trauma. And uh, the, the East River, right? Hudson River, which river? Hudson River. Hudson. It's Hudson. And he did cut his foot. He walked around barefoot uh -huh. and he cut his foot. And that was the one accident on set. But he was, he was, he was very, uh, low budget method i would say he he was he was the type of person that would be like i'll i'll do it i'll do it and he like put the put the fish in his mouth and you know <laughs> like that was all that was none of that was written it was yeah. all just him <laughs> wanting to be fully immersed in this uh in this character immersed. when you mentioned the the blue makeup uh, and green makeup um was there any problems that when they're coming out of the water because uh, i would assume it, it might uh it was house paint Really? We no. didn't have lights, so you couldn't see anything anyway. That's right. <laughs> it, was car, we, it was headlamps. <laughs> That's the only, that for me, the only problem is the sound, right? The sound is just atrocious. The sound is pretty bad. And if you remember, we didn't really have a sound mixer. We had right. Sal Lometta, who's an associate producer. And other than you, he was the one guy who was, who was really pleasant on the set from the, from the older group. And a lot of time he held the boom and sometimes we did, but there wasn't a sound person per se. And you can tell. Yeah. I will, I will say like I had that in my notes. I was going to bring it up, but, um, the dialogue, yeah, it is a little hard to hear the dialogue at certain points and it's uneven at a few times, but overall it's a very fun movie. You would think that with some sort of a licensing deal with HBO max, they would spend just a little bit of money going back, cleaning it up a little. I'd like to see a widescreen personally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I don't really know the story. Maybe George can shed some some light on it. But basically, the key players of this film, um, they seem to have just kind of abandoned it. And that's why I mention it when I can. I started the Facebook page. I propose this thing. Somebody's got to keep the story living. It deserves a little bit of attention for its role in the 80s pantheon. A lot of things were going on. That, that dumpy apartment that you had your meeting, your initial meeting in, was uh, where where John lived with his girlfriend Aki Fujiyoshi, and uh, who was also from the cinemas or the Baronet and Corey. Yeah, no, the cinemas. Yeah, and uh, we were uh, candy girls together. Um, I was yeah, a candy girl. cigarettes. Was a candy girl. That was the actual name <laughs> of the job. It was a long time ago, but. Um, but they broke up while he was editing the film because she felt he was putting too much time in a movie that she didn't have any respect for. And how how Marsha Lucas of her. Yeah. 
What was that? How Marsha Lucas of her. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have a role in the film, though. She didn't, but she does have one in, in Splatter University. She right. has a couple of good lines. Um, but, you know, so he moved to Queens and he ended up taking over the editing completely, which he did on a, um, a movieola, which is kind of like um, mm -hmm. like a motorboat engine with a little screen on it about the size of half a paperback book. And it works with a foot pedal. And that's how he cut it with a hot splicer on the kitchen table and this motorboat, which I'm sure his neighbors just love listening to all day. <laughs> and so it was just so much work that by the time he got the cut down to something that was usable, he was probably ready to, to, to change his career and maybe go into religion or something. Right. Um, but you know, we, that's where the money is. That's where the <laughs> money is. <laughs> <Darn tootin'. laughs> Depends on which religion, I guess. But I've uh, said many times that he's became a monk. That's sort of sort of out there in the uh, blogosphere. Um, but he's got a heck of a beard. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> None that's of us important can, thing. can right. get a beard yeah. like his. It's down around his his waist. Hmm. But. Uh, uh, anyway. William also brings up he's he just uh, about the sound he said I fixed the sound with my uh, equalizer he says you can hear the dialogue you filter out the low he goes into like the details but I just think you know if someone could do that on their own time it probably would be something easy uh, William what are you doing time. next Saturday can you come to my place <laughs> <laughs> to fix it <laughs> actually I want to what I liked about watching the movie today is that it's a if you are 17, 18 years old and you want to make a movie with your friends and you, you, you can do it and you can see how we did it by looking at this film, right? If you study this film, the enthusiasm of the actors, cause they're just happy to be there and they're having fun doing silly things with their friends, but the actual the camera placements are clunky. The, you know, the, the structure, but it tells the story and it, you can follow it and it's funny and it's entertaining and it's hopelessly amateurish, but it's wonderful because of that. And I think that's, it, it's why this film shouldn't not exist. I mean, I have so many young people, young people, they're all like, like 80. Oh, I love that film when I was 14. Ah, oh, it's so good. You sent me an autographed poster. And, but, but people, I actually hired a guy to work for me on a documentary I'm doing right now. Um, who was a kid I sent a poster to, an autographed poster to. That's Dan. Hey, Dan. And uh, he, you know, it's it, it inspired him to go into the business. You know, and if it could do that, I think it's a great thing. Well, I mean, some I say all the time on the show, I, I can overlook uh, technical flaws in a movie. If you could tell, like, they're having fun making it or um, it's entertaining and if something's technically great and it's just boring and it's run of the mill, like I don't care how how well it's actually made, uh, that's not entertaining to me. But there's a lot of color behind the scenes. It was not it was not a joyous set all the time. First of all, it was a hell of a lot of work. All three of us were in Manhattan, so we had to take the train from wherever we were downtown connect to a train to go uptown to the george washington bridge then there would be a van waiting to take us into new jersey and it's not like they were giving us train fare or anything we were completely on our own 
then you'd go out to New Jersey and uh, there were a lot of days where we weren't fed. Honestly, that's the but number one rule. You, you remember my solution? When no. we're shooting the Palisades? No. One day I missed the van and they freaking left me. I so remember I, this. Yes. You weren't important I, to the story. Right. Not <laughs> at all. So, so I walk across the bridge and I'm trying to figure out how to get, you know, to the park. And it's very confusing. So I'm standing there in Fort Lee and I look around and there's a McDonald's. So I go into the McDonald's and I start talking. And I start talking to the girls at McDonald's about what we're doing in the park. And, you know, that I'm going down there and I don't know how to get into the park. And, oh, we know how to get into the park. Oh, how do you get into the park? Oh, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to get some breakfast. But we, we've had a hard time getting food down there. Oh, really? And before you knew it, I had these three girls coming down to the set every day with bags of McDonald's. And they would hang out and watch us. Not like, you know, with that, you know, I call it the delicious boredom, you know, watching films get made. Right, right. And it's like they loved it, and we got McDonald's several days. <laughs> well, apparently you didn't apparently try that did in Brooklyn because I remember having no food, no food at Brooklyn College. I've never heard of a film since where there was no food. And uh, Dora, who was John's assistant, kindly went out and got him a sandwich, and he was kind of on the spot. And I just remember us all sitting around in a circle on the lawn. Watching him eat the sandwich. <laughs> That's my number one memory of this shoot. But I also remember, um, you know, there were two cinematographers at one point, And one of the cinematographers earlier in the shoot had an argument with John and punched him in the face. And they had to convince him to turn over some footage that he had. Oh, wow. So things could get very tense. And uh, I even remember one day when Robert Sabin no relationship to Craig Saban, no. lost his temper. So, you know, when you work long, long days and you're not being fed and really not being shown a whole lot of appreciation, even if you're sympathetic to the guys because they're under a lot of pressure, they really were, uh, tempers can flare. Do you remember that, Robert, when you lost your temper? Uh, I don't. What I, what I remember is, sorry, for somebody to show up for the van at the GW bridge. Maybe this was, Oh yes. I wasn't, and you said, the crew. I, was I have time car. to go make a phone call. So you went and you took a handful of change because you had to put a bunch of quarters in to call New Jersey, let's say a girlfriend long distance or something. <laughs> and then of course the person shows up like right after you left and Sal's like, okay, where's Robert? And I'm like, Oh, he went to make go get him. So I had to go in and tell you to get right off the phone. And I hustled away from you because I could see you shaking your head and you came and you got in the van and you slammed the door <laughs> and you said, I'm really sick of this production. And the rest of us just turned dead silent. And it was the most uncomfortable trip across the George Washington Bridge I've ever had in my life. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. That had more to do with the relationship, though, than it had to do with uh, with the production. Well, certainly not typical of your behavior. That's why it was so funny. <laughs> I mean, we were quiet, but we were kind of like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a lot of mistakes made in the production end of things, right? Because you either knew a little bit or you knew nothing. Yeah. Right. And on working on a trauma project, you know, they always managed to get somebody 
to, you know, like some company like Goya to deliver cases of black beans. So they would get somebody to warm up the black beans and throw some salt and pepper on it. And that was lunch. Yeah. But we didn't have anybody like that who could get us black beans or, you know, other sorts of things. We, we didn't even have anyone really like getting day old fruit or old bread or anything like that. And so we were all left to our own devices, you know, working a 17 hour day is pretty miserable and we're getting grumpy. You know, we don't have any money in our pockets. We're all poor. We all quit our jobs to make this stupid and this wonderful movie. And, you know, it, it, it just, I, I never made that mistake again in my career, such as it is. Not once. Yeah, me either. I worked on another film club called Plutonium Baby, where they were putting us up in a hotel uh, in Connecticut. And on the last day, they decided that they didn't have money to buy us dinner. And we we didn't even have to discuss it. We just all said, we're leaving then. And if the tickets are, are only good tomorrow, we are not shooting mm. for the day. And they caved and got us food right away. Was it yeah. black beans? Goya black beans? No, no, it was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh. <laughs> I will say I, had, I was able to see the prospectus that they were handing out to investors for I Was a Teenage Zombie, which at the time was budgeted at 25000 or 35000 so that was the figure I had in my head for Slime City, too. Um, but I do remember the line item. It was a, a typewritten prospectus, too. I do remember the line item for food for the entire shoot was $500. Wow. Which is, you know, Ooh. even on an indie film, that's like a day, a daily budget, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank, D- Dave's Gaming Channel just uh, sent some super chat money. So thanks uh, to Dave's. Uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah. We'll the sandwiches. Place. Someone send out for McDonald's. <laughs> some black beans here. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ty Chiman uh, wants to know uh, what was the original pitch for the film? There were there weren't pitches back then. There weren't log lines. The pitch was probably we worked in secondary positions on this previous film, so we know what we're doing. Give us some money, and you will make. 10 times your investment back. That's basically what the perspective was. It was a different time then. You know, there were no script readers or anything like that. Also, Ty is a kid who works on, on some of the sets. Yeah. That I'm from. We, the movie company is named Periclean Motion Pictures. Right. And the key to our fundraising, if you recall, is coffee shops, which were owned by mostly Greek people then. And so we went to every Greek coffee shop. We enjoyed the spinach copeta, which is spinach pie. Yeah. And we gave them the pitch for the movie. And John was very connected in that. Um, he's very connected, you know, to various people in that community. And it helped us raise money on that level. Well, there were a lot of Greeks of in the crew, right? Right. A lot of the guys were Greek. That's right. Which is why that one line is funny that Lenny says, you know, how do you tell, how do you separate the men from the boys in Greece with a crowbar? Oh, genius. <laughs> By the way, Neil, mm-hmm. George played Gordy, the leader of the five guys, yeah. and Robert played Chucky, the mad scientist. I know. I played a character that was identified as the nerd in the script. Uh-huh. But once I took the role and did oh, not have elevator. a pocket protector, it, be, it evolved into something different because I couldn't play the nerd. 
No, you were like I, the stoner. I think you were at that point. I was the production manager. No, yeah, but you were the stoner in your scene. I was procuring looking weed, for pot. Yeah, I think the actual stoner would be the character who who's all dry, man. It's all dry. Yeah. You know what happens? We're gonna go. Go with the go. Nothing. You ever tried eucalyptus? Oh. <laughs> when we shot that that particular scene, one small town cop had a real issue with us shooting on the property. And he told us that if we set foot off the owner's property, he was going to arrest us and impound the camera. And he stood there all day against his cop car with his arms folded. It's very, very <laughs> obsessive. Well, yeah. there, there was a reason for that, too. Woody Allen shot, what was it, the, the one about the guy who comes out of the movie screen? Purple Rose of Cairo. Purple Rose of Cairo in that town. They had an old, like, like you know, silent movie house that they were showing movies in. And he shot there, and he paid the town a tremendous sum of money for the town. When we shot in Splatter University, they kissed our ass up and down the road, onto the river, and up to this creepy house that we shot in. We didn't pay a permit fee because they wanted, like, you know, $50,000 for right. us to shoot one day. Right. And so this guy, for a little while that day, they were kept putting on the um, the siren as well to like ruin our sound takes. Oh yeah, and it was like, hey, the microphone can't hear us anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have to do some dubbing. Uh, thanks, Eric James, and uh, ten bucks super chat. This is a profitable show here. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, he adds, it's been years, George. Apparently, a friend of yours, Eric James. Oh, hey man, how are you? And uh, Fuzzball Productions. Uh, oh, well, uh, Dominic Luongo asked, did Greg do his own stunts? What happened to me? I got knocked over in the Frisbee scene, right? Dominic did a podcast about the show, incidentally. You reviewed it. I sent Oh, it. very cool. Um, no, I didn't have a stunt double. The stunt was the None of us did. None of us did. We it all was, did uh, our own stunts because we were tougher then. Yeah, we were, we were more spry. Um, I remember we did not have any production assistance on the film. And I learned that what a production manager does, because I didn't know it when I signed on, is he does anything that the production assistants would do when they're not there. And one day uh, when we were shooting up by the place with a tunnel, there were some people in the frame about a quarter of a mile away. And John told Jim, the writer, because he sometimes he treated Jim like a production assistant. Jim, go tell them to get out of the shot. And George, in one of those wonderful mentor moments that I described early on, said, John, Jim's the writer. It's not his job to do that. And to which I then realized, oh, that's my job to do that. Thank you, George. <laughs> so I ran the quarter of a mile, asked him politely to move, and ran the quarter mile back. Now, in those days, I could run a half mile. I couldn't do that today. I wouldn't even attempt it today. In fact, I was assistant director on a football commercial in the Bills Stadium, and I had to run, do a little running, and one of the stars ran alongside me, making fun of me, one of the star players. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll never run on set again. <laughs> never. Gotta want it. Gotta want it. You gotta want it, Greg. <laughs> William wants to know whose blue Chevy Malibu wagon was that? John's mother, I'm guessing. Yeah. That we vote the two votes, John's mother. Yeah, she was a school bus driver. Was there in Fort Lee, Jersey, and and his mom was on set a few times, and I think she got us pizza at least once. So I liked her, and we shot at his house once. 
That's and right. on that particular day, they were repeating the finale of MASH. And I said, fuck this, and went in the house and watched the finale of MASH. <laughs> no one noticed. Wow. They were repeating. That was, I guess, so it, this was years after the finale of MASH, but they were they were showing it again. No, it was just the end of repeat season of that last season. It, okay. All right. For that day we were shooting yeah. on uh ty wants to know how long did it take to edit uh the film before it get released i think george answered that ty pay attention <laughs> that's right pay attention. there will be a quiz <laughs> no about two two and a half years i think long time that's uh that's keyword moviola moviola that's right <laughs> so uh what did you think of the finished movie at that time when it when it was done not you know the not premiere, now currently the premiere but the was fun uh, we we did it at the Waverly, and I was excited to see my name in the opening credits, which I wasn't expecting. And Mussolini showed up in makeup. Oh, he did! Awesome. <laughs> I was uh, very mindful of the fact that all these big scenes that we shot—I mean, there was a big sequence in a drive-in that we spent all night shooting at—that I really liked in the script. And there was a fight between the two zombies with machetes, with the guys watching. And I I thought for sure that would have made the cut, but. It was so long that they just had to pull out anything they could. And then I was pleased at the end to hear that George's song had made it in. I, was so so it's, it's, I mean, that was the first movie Robert and I had worked on. So it's exciting to go to a premiere and be yeah. part of that whole thing and see your work up there finally. And that was at the um, uh, the Waverly, right? Yeah. Waverly. Yeah. That was that was really exciting. It's the first time I'd ever seen like the whole like seeing a movie that you're in up on the big screen it was uh very very fun very fun night it, it it's exciting to see a movie you know no matter what you know even if you're gonna watch it on television you never saw it you know just seeing it for the first time all together with people you know there's a, an electric current that goes through it and you laugh at all the jokes even though you did those jokes a hundred times and seeing it all together you know even if it's not you know because you have these memories of what you were doing that day you're on the set, right? Mm -hmm. You have a memory of that. And then you watch the movie and it kind of rewrites all your memories to tell the story of the movie. And so you forget things like the the, the all-nighter in the drive-in or the or the two machete, you know, the sword fight. You know, it it you know, we had a lot of things like there was a couple nights we were we were in that damn park all night long. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what were we shooting? We ran into the woods. We ran out of the woods in the same freaking shot. <laughs> the sunset happens and then it rises in the same place where it's set. Right? It's like, what? And yet, you know, why did we stay there all night to get the sunrise when the sunrise comes up over the city, not over, you know, Jersey? Which is that sounds like a production management question, but <laughs> I don't think I was ever consulted. <laughs> Why were we there all night to accommodate the misogynistic twerp? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I you um I saw on Facebook you had a cool poster, and Greg actually told me he he didn't think he'd ever seen it before. It was like a it was like a sketch poster with I think I'd like oh. the severed head on it. It's what the sales team used to sell it for international sales, right, George? Yep. the manly inner. I think it said manly. Manly had the foreign, I guess. Yeah, and we um, it's also um, you know, we we would go out 
at when we were doing midnight shows, we would go out at about 11 o'clock and start hitting everybody with flyers. Like, hey, man, you want to see a great movie? Oh, it's a great movie. You're going to love this movie. It's incredible. You know, we would pull people off and sometimes they would be happy that they saw the midnight movie and sometimes they'd be less than happy. But, you know, we were out there every night when it was doing midnight shows to get people in. And th there was something um, interesting. When I saw Splatter University in the movie theater, it was on 42nd Street. And this was, it was at the tail end of when 42nd Street was known as the Deuce. And um, I was alone with a, you know, by myself to see the movie because I didn't want to, you know, I want to really study my craft and see how I did. And I'm sitting in a movie theater alone. And it's one of those big palaces that they cut up into like four theaters. And throughout the movie, ladies are escorting businessmen to a seat. And then the ladies' heads would disappear. And then a minute later, they'd get up and the man would get up and they would leave. And this happened all throughout the movie. So when we got to the theater and we, our movie came out, that was pretty much over. And so I went to, when I saw, you know, I was a teenage zombie in, in the movie theater, like by myself when it was playing, what was it playing? It was playing somewhere in like a dodgy area. And I kind of went half to see the, the, the whores, as they said, um, do their business, but they weren't any because that was over. So you had to watch yourself. I had to watch uh, myself and say, oh, my God, I'm losing my hair. Oh, my God, I'm overbait. I had to do that. <laughs> it was just all over the place. It was horrible. Your head going up and down. Yep. On, I, on, on yourself. Very, I was very flexible then. Yeah, good. <laughs> Yeah, without your head, yeah. That was a, that was on your resume. Special skills. I can <laughs> relate myself. It was. I can. It was a thing. <laughs> uh, Sarah wants to know what's the story with Craig's glasses being different in that one scene. Craig's glasses, sir. Uh, I. It's a continuity issue. Ask the production manager. <laughs> no, no, that was props and wardrobe. That was Dora. The assistant who got John the sandwich to eat in front of all of us. That's not me. Yeah. It, John's cousin. It, it, it's something that got past all of us. And, uh, you know, now that we have the, um, uh, you know, the dubious gift of, uh, you know, being able to rewatch it constantly. It's it's the thing everyone everyone talks about when they when they talk about that movie. The glasses. What's up with the glasses? <laughs> Chuck was no bum. He was a debonair nerd. Yeah, he, he had more than one honestly, pair of glasses. glasses. He had many glasses. He was a man of many glasses. The glasses yeah. in front mm -hmm. of me right now. Chuck <laughs> kind of becomes the leader of the group after uh, after Mussolini dies. I think after they kill Mussolini, he kind of becomes the leader. Well, yeah, becomes the dad. He's yeah. he's the yeah he's he's the investigator. It's the mastermind of the yeah, group. he's yeah. he's the one figuring out what's going on. But right. ultimately, ultimately, you know, we our our fate was in the hands of of Dan, <laughs> you know, Mike right. the zombie. Yeah, that last scene where we're leaning up against a car and how long will they have? And you 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 know, you give us. I love that song. scene, by the way. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Got it's to a, me in the script and it gets to me in the movie, and it just has a yeah. I don't want to say pathos, but a, a genuine emotion that. I don't pick up too many times in the film. It, I it, it definitely does. But didn't she come alive? Didn't we film her come alive and kiss him? No, I don't think no, so. We never filmed that. No, because he was such a bad kisser in the scene in the lake. 
I do remember the lake. Maybe that's why. Because that lake was freezing cold. So lippy. And she had to dip down, and we didn't think she was going to do it. And she was, she was game. She was game. Uh, Was any any of the stuff you? Sorry, any of the stuff you did film, and you said like, was it used like the machete fight and stuff? Is any of that saved, or is that just gone? Um, I had like Catholic Church has it, doesn't it, George? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, the uh, the Greek Orthodox Church. I don't know. It's um, in his beard. Actually, I when I did, I was a teenage zomb- zombie video. I actually had a print of the film that I use in the video, and I transferred it to to video. I did a high quality transfer, such as it is, and and you know. So I said, well, where's the rest of the film? And he was like, I threw it out. I'm like, everything? And he said, yeah. You know, I couldn't, I have no place to store it. So it's it's gone forevermore. It's only in our memories. It's the second time tonight you brought me down. I'm so sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. But there was a sad clown, George. Uh, so two two of the leads we should mention, and and that would be uh, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Who was uh, now I've forgotten his name. Uh, <laughs> Joe Rubin, Mike Rubin. Yeah, Joe Mike Rubin's Rubin. brother, Mike Rubin. He's the the younger brother of the guy who directed Dreamscape and uh, Sleeping with the Enemy and a bunch of really top notch thrillers. And he and the screenwriter of Dreamscape visited the set. Which was Very kind good. of a thrill because me, me and Peter Clark loved Dreamscape. That was a great movie. Great movie. Yeah, I used to rent it a lot on VHS back uh, back when I was a kid. Yeah, and I think he realized right on right during the film that acting wasn't really for him. But I had heard he was doing assistant directing for a while, and I don't see the credits on, online, so I guess he found something else. But he was an assistant director for a while. And the guy that I have lost track of, who I would really like to know about, is Pete Bush. Yeah, Rosencrantz, who was the mm-hmm. sweetest guy yeah. with a super nervous condition. And he worked with me at the video store where me and a bunch of my friends worked in Times Square. And I used to torment this poor guy and terrify him because I would just I would strike the karate kid pose and he would just go <laughs> like not knowing what was going to happen next. And <laughs> I really liked him. And I'd like to know uh, what happened with him. Me too. No, no other credits. I liked him very much. He was very talented, I thought. Yeah. And he had a great sense of humor um, about him. You know, like he understood that he was a char- a natural character, and that's where he was going to do his best acting was in that character. He wasn't going to play Hercules. He was a soothing presence, and him and Big Al from The Rock were, were a good pair together. Yeah. Yeah, we used to talk about him playing uh, Peter Parker. Yes, yeah, Steve Ditko's Peter Parker. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, if he can get his fingers to do all that, he did <laughs> yeah. shit, you know. <laughs> CGS. Uh, Dave's Dave <laughs> wants double. to know: uh, Was there any issues with the MPAA uh, of anything in the film? It was never submitted to the MPAA, just like a lot of <laughs> indie films back then, because it cost thousands of dollars to get that rating. And unless a video company insists on it, you don't spend that money. And usually if the company insists on it, they pay for it themselves and they deduct the expense from your royalties. Yeah, but that was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jack Jack Boom Boom Valenti, 
was the head of the MPAA then. And he was he was pretty damn nasty about low budget films, particularly horror movies. It was something about it he really hated. And if you tried to get it past him, you know, if your budget was like, you know, below five hundred thousand dollars, it was it was a red flag to those people. And they would watch the movie and they would want you to make changes. And it was a, in a way I think he felt that he wasn't um, he was helping support a healthy film industry for people who are already making a living yeah. in the film industry. Yeah, yeah, this was part of the Reagan era and Reagan uh, got rid of a lot of the tax write off uh, aspects of film. And it just felt like it was a shakedown because then you would make cuts and you would have to pay thousands of dollars to resubmit it again. Yeah, it wasn't you pay once and give get a few passes. You had to keep paying them money each time. It's similar to the comics code. You know, there just came a point where different creators said, why bother? What's the point? Yeah. What a pain in the butt. Uh, um, Ty, Ty wants to know, did you ever put any nods or references uh, to I was a teenage zombie in any future films that you made? Robert, did you evoke Chucky in any of the films we did together? I didn't evoke Chucky, although I I, I did do for uh, many years a podcast called um, uh, Zombie Radio Show. Right. And uh, Zombie Radio Show was very much in in line with the dark comedy of I Was a Teenage Zombie. And um, and I feel like uh, at at that time everyone on the set was a huge fan of uh Sam Raimi and George Romero and and so there was uh just a lot of talk about you know brain eating zombies versus flesh eating zombies you know and it's yeah, and, and fast and yeah. yeah exactly slow v fast and it, so um so i had a lot of fun uh doing that for um for some years and i think that's as close as i came to sort of channeling the spirit of I was a teenage zombie. It had no music though, apart from unlistenable jazz music, which is part of the joke. Yeah. <laughs> George. Um, well, you brought up the Raimi's, uh, Sam Raimi. Uh, he and his brother were actually real fans of the film because they felt like we did it for no money. Like if they gave us a little Checks bit out. of money, what would they do? But of course they couldn't find John because he had disappeared by that point, but they found me. And so they hired me to write a script I pitched to them, and it was called Schmorgus Morg. And it was about a guy who works at the morgue who goes into business feeding ghouls like a buffet. I'm all about <laughs> this. Yeah, yeah. And so we wrote the script, and, um, you know, I guess they went into television and decided not to come up with the money, but they did. They they had a I had a pretty great conversation with them about making the movie. That story makes this whole episode worthwhile. That was <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, never neither that. did I. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> they were they were accessible uh, back in the day. I, yeah, yeah. I had friends friends of mine were you know pitching them a superhero idea, and this is before Spider or just after the first Spider Man. Uh, but they were like, yeah, this is, they were they were just open. They were open to you know creators trying to do stuff. Yeah, and they were. There were real fans too. Like, I don't know if we're all comic book guys too, but they were, you would see them at the comic book convention. Mm -hmm. You'd say, Hey, that guy looks like the guy in, in like dark man. And it would be Ivan, you know, like, Oh, 
yeah, I am. You know, my brother makes the, you know, like we did that together. And, and so you could meet them. There were a bunch of people you'd, you'd meet from time to time that were around the scene, you know, were far more successful than I was. I mean, one of the reasons that I never even considered making any sort of reference to it in any of the films I worked on afterwards was there came a moment of the film that sort of sank my heart. And it was when, during a conversation of what other films John might want to do, he wanted to do, to do a Custer and Sitting Bull uh, movie very much. He said, I fucking hate horror. And I was just like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> you did a horror film. You're making a horror film. We're all here on your horror comedy, busting our asses with no food. And you're going to sit there and say you hate the genre that we're working in. And it, it just kind of left a bad feeling in me about the whole thing from that day forward. Yeah, I know. Even doing the show, when if, if I have someone on and they talk about like not liking horror movies, I always think, like, at least lie when you're in the show and just, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Well, he was being honest. I'll give yeah, yeah. Credit. I mean, and he obviously liked comedy and considered the film a comedy with horror aspects. But it, it was just... You know, I was so excited to be working on a horror yeah, film yeah. and I would do anything to be there. You know, even that even did, pretty much. if you look at how skinny I am in the film, that's why I would go home and I, I all I had in the house was beef bullion cubes and I would make myself hot liquid to eat at the end of a long day. Good times. I weighed 119 pounds. Woo! I was half the man I am today. <laughs> uh, William McConnell wants to know, what was the relationship with uh, the old guy who played Lenny? Like, how do you get involved in the movie? Did he actually own that place? Or? No, he didn't own it. He was, no, he was an actor. I think he came in. We did two major castings at a independent theater company. We rented out like their rehearsal room and literally we got like 200 people showed up. It was like crazy. And, you know, we had all these experiences with people who auditioned and presented something. And then when we got them to the set, they wouldn't do it. Um, uh, Linnea was, uh, was going to be our one like nude shot in the entire film. And then when it came time to do it, she said, no. You know, so it, I think that scene, which is gruesome, yeah. I think only got more gruesome, you know, the rape scene, because she wouldn't do the boob shot that she promised us. And she had small boobs that were perfectly fine, exactly where they're meant to be. And yet, at that moment, she said no. And then she got really um, angry, but she went with the scene as it was, even though it took for freaking ever. You remember we shut that scene i got bored and I, I walked away um it just, just to get on. a fit like technically done with the with the legs and it was it two, was two people legs. right right, you know, right two other people and just lifted the legs so if you know your footwear you'll notice that it's the wrong legs <laughs> <laughs> you twist them up but he does this he switches them around so they're I don't know. It's crazy. It's it would be crazy. worth seeing if the film is mentioned on any, any foot fetish sites, except then you get bombarded with foot fetish things. On, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You don't mention it. Maybe George Tarantino's a big fan. Yeah. I went to an audition session and it was actually at the Baronet and Coronet. 
I well, that was, say, that was a later one. Run. That and that's the Robert audition, right? I think you came, you came to the Baronet and Coronet to audition. And I, w- I had so much fun watching the different actors do the basement scene where he mm-hmm. says, I'm a teenage zombie, damn it. And <laughs> so many of the actors were frankly more effective than our, the Dan we went with, but he was fine. But there was such a dramatic drive to the auditions, whereas they played it more for the laughs in the film. Right. Uh, Dan was a good looking fella. Yeah. Com- and compared to some of the fellows who auditioned for that part, I mean, we don't have, he's the closest thing to a movie star that we, <laughs> right. and, you know, yeah. in his, like, in his, like, look, he's fit, you know, but not he's also straight, unlike a lot of the guys who auditioned. Correct. Like, uh, but his instincts were good too. Like he, like how he delivered that line. Look at me. I'm a teenage zombie. Look at me was the climax of the line. And then I was right. a teenage zombie is like in, in defeat right. and it's right. and it's you know it's a much better you choice than look at me i'm a teenage zombie that's right you are correct one yeah. thing i'll say about all five of you guys um I, I, diner had already come out right yeah i think we were all aware of the concept of the five guys but i don't know how much discussion you guys all had on your own but there was definitely an understanding of what the the chemistry had between you all and and made it work that's a compliment. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I brought the we'll take I thought it seems like you guys are all actually no, friends no, when you guys are talking and stuff. I, I think we're thinking about it. We what I enjoyed the most about the acting part, right? Was was the fact that we would talk about bits of business. Stick. Every scene though, we had this conversation about what we were going to do in the scene. How were we going to make it funnier? Like the scene where we run behind the curtain and then we all poke our heads up. Mm. Of course, we didn't do it in a way that, that you know, because I'm so tall, that's why I'm on top. And <laughs> instead, I'm like, we're all the same height. You know, like <laughs> Peter is actually the tallest one right. of the three of us. I think. And he should have been on top, but that's not how we played it. You know, so I'm like, I'm tiptoes, like barely up there. <laughs> you know, it's we were constantly trying to come up with something funny to do because we knew that, you know, if we didn't pull it off, it wasn't going to happen. Right. It, it, it was not in like John's interest to make us funny. It was in our interest to make us funny. And we did that. I think. I do remember shooting on the day we shot at the lake. While some of, while they were shooting uh, Dan supposedly getting blown underwater by uh, Cindy Faithful, um, Peter, Big Al, Gwen, and I don't remember if Linnea was there or not. I don't think she was. I think Gwen was there. They worked out this whole bit, the fall stick with uh, the towel and this and that. And it was very funny, um, but it wasn't. They weren't asked to do it. And at that particular time, John was irritated with them presenting, always presenting stuff to him. And he just shot them down right away. And I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do. If he knew what the scene was supposed to be, he knew what the scene was supposed to be. But it was pretty crushing for them to have spent like 40 minutes working on this and just have it dismissed without them even being able to audition it for him. Right. I, I wish I had known uh, I was more cognizant because for whatever reason, um, I could push any thing through you know if i didn't like a scene that we were going to shoot the next day 
I got to the set with, you know, three pages, four pages of dialogue that we were going to shoot uh, because that was, yeah. Oh, yes, we are. We're going to, you know, because that was my relationship with him. You know, there was no way he was going to tell me no, because what I had written was better. You know, and it didn't matter if it was better. It was just I felt it was better because I did it. I was a big fan of you uh, scratching your head with the machete. It's kind of a, a nod to play a nine with uh, the yeah, guy with the a, gun scratching his head of with the gun. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think that's, you know, kind of how we work it. And I wish I had seen that scene because, because the fall, there is a scene, Linnea is in the scene, that scene with them, and she makes them go swimming. And they're going to go and get into their bathing suits, which, of course, you know, Big Al was not getting in a bathing suit. But they, she's pulling them. And uh, Gwen does this fall, which is actually really funny. You know, yeah, it's like a solid that. fall. You know, it's not a banana peel like uh, Mussolini has to do. But it was, uh, you know, it was a decent fall. You know, her feet pop up into the frame when she hits the, I think we used um, all the towels and the blankets we put down. I think we stacked them all on the floor for her to land on so she didn't hurt herself. Because sounds, sounds like great padding. Hmm. <laughs> maybe that yeah. was the day a monsoon hit us and we had to haul all that equipment through, through the, the woods water. and up a hill to the car and it was uh some people were not happy about that definitely not um in in its older sibling right uh splatter university just as we were finishing the film somebody said hey can i have that piece of gaffer tape that roll of gaffer tape and the guy said yeah and he threw it and it hit Francine Forbes, the actress right on the nose. Oh and you God. could hear the crack <laughs> and the blood and the eyes. And, oh, man, we had a sh we couldn't shoot the end of the film. We had to wait like three weeks. So it was very exciting. So, you know, the fall was like a big deal. We could fall, but the girl John was very concerned about. So I just remember like finding anything soft stacking it so she could do this little fall that she so wanted to do but i wish i had seen the towel bit now i feel guilty george do you remember how many days we shot it was a full yeah. month it was and a full month i think it was i think all together we shot a full month we shot like 32 days in a row and then we did two weekends after that where we came back and shot something else 30 days without a day off pretty much yeah i missed one day because i uh literally had no money for a uh train token and i lied and said i was sick for the day because i was too embarrassed to say i had no money but that's that's how broke i was doing that film oh. yeah well, no, i was I gonna say you know uh, greg you quit your job you did no money stuff but how important it was this movie to your future career as a film director extremely i i went to new york to go to film school after one year of film school i said i don't see this getting me where i want to be and i worked for a year as a movie theater manager and during that year the deadly spawn evil dead the 16 millimeter films came out and basket case was already playing when i got there and my plan was okay i'm going to find a way to get into get into movies and uh, i spent a year managing this theater making what was considered good money at the time, like 220 a week. And then I met John and that's why as soon as that opportunity presented it, I said, I'm there. 
I'm quitting my job, whatever. Um, I need, I had written Slime City and me and Peter Clark needed to know the nuts and bolts of how to pull one of these things together. And I definitely needed that experience. And I learned so much from what they did right, but also from what they did wrong. I promised myself I wouldn't make the same mistakes. And of course, when Slime City did happen, we made our own mistakes. We made new mistakes, but you have to. It was a fantastic learning experience. And I've said many times, uh, I learned as much on that set in that one month as I learned in a whole year of film school. And you learn how to, to work with people and how to deal with people and how to identify which people are there to help you and which ones are to step and uh, which ones just to avoid because they've got too much on their plate. That's that's really important. Uh, that actually comes up several times in interviews I do with uh, independent filmmakers who say, uh, for Troma, for example, they might not, they they know going in, they're not going to make any money. But I know like Liam Regan, who's made a lot of uh, movies since then, he said he used it as his film school, uh, just being on set and learning how to make a movie. But the, the key, I think, is that you have to have people around you who have done it before. Mm -hmm. And we had that on Teenage Zombie. John had worked as the assistant director on Splatter U, which was directed by Richard Haynes. And George had been on that set. And Jim was too, right? George? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, they, these guys, if they had time to talk, they would talk. But uh, usually well, they were just too busy. There was so much to do. Yeah. That's why I said you were you were the mentor because you had the the time to talk. And if you didn't have time, you'd make time to talk. Yep. Oh, wait, you wait. I'm talking now. <laughs> you don't need me right yet. I'm telling this kid what to do. Um, yeah, because I had a I had a production company uh, job. You know, I had I had done a, a bunch of commercials and I had done a shit ton of uh, industrial films, um, and so. You know, a lot of that, like our B camera was my camera that when I, when I got shit can from uh, when NBC went from shooting with a film camera, all the news, right? You, you, they put in a film chain, you, they, they'd soup it right there at, at Rockefeller Center. You bring up your rolls of film, you'd give it to them. They'd soup it right there. And then they put it in the film chain wet and they would put it on, on the video and then they start cutting. Sometimes they would even soup it, give it to the editor. The editor would cut out the holes and then they roll it right into the show from the fill chain. So I had a bunch of equipment that I bought. You know, they were going to put it in the garbage. So they decided to sell it to me. And what they sold me, like, uh, they, they sold me the camera for like $35. Each lens was $5. This is a, an, an Aeroflex 60 millimeter camera. And, uh, but the blimp, they wanted $250 for. For, so you didn't hear it sound right. like a motorboat. It was crazy. Um, but that's where we got some of our equipment from. You know, we just did these, you know, I was trying to work on a film and I kept saying like, oh, don't we have any like lavalier microphones? Can we get some of those? I thought one of these guys, you know, worked in the film department at Brooklyn College. And, you know, he did. He was also a, a guy at the token booth. So he didn't want to borrow that. Um, he didn't want to borrow anything from them that we might lose or break. And but he did get us the the shotgun boom mic, which you can see the shadow many times on Craig's face more often <laughs> than anybody else. Because you were just in the middle, I think. 
Yeah, and I've, I've got one of those faces that just attracts shadows. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was just going uh, I, I, I know we did a Slime City show uh, before, but Craig, uh, working on this with Greg, uh, were you all on board then when uh, Greg wanted to make Slime City? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. No, Greg and I, Greg and I were buddies and, you know, I, um, I was, you know, with, it was, it was fun to see the movie made, you know, um, it was, and of course, Greg got me the job. So there was, there was that gratitude, but it was just very exciting, you know, because Greg has always been like just a person that knows where he's going and is constantly, you know, there. So it was it was very good to be sort of in the slipstream of 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 that ambition. And, um, you know, also, you know, he's a fucking great writer. And, you know, I mean, so it was it was just wonderful to be able to, uh, you know, be a part of that for as long as I was able to do it. Before he ran off to L.A. Yeah. Yeah. Before I scurried <laughs> off, you know, it was before cell phones. So that's why I never got the call from Greg ever. Until because yeah. if I had had a cell phone, you would be able to call me or text me. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, of course, definitely, I would work on that." No, it definitely helps to live to live with a guy. You know, like he would <laughs> yep. he would be at the window screaming, "George!" and I'd be like, "I'll do it." Yeah. I'm here. George, I think I did call you for one, but you were spending busy spending six months as a juror on the Bernard Getz trial. Oh no, close. It was the preppy murder trial. Oh, the Robert oh, Chambers. It was horrible. Yeah, it, it was absolutely like the worst experience of my freaking life. Sequestered, right? Sequestered forever in the For worst hotels. Yeah, the worst hotels in New York <laughs> City. I got a fungus that I only just got rid of. <laughs> well, right. that's cleared up for you. But. I, I, you, you know, get the I, best funguses. You oh, get the best, the you get the best fungi best in hotels have the best yeah, funguses. Exactly. Oh yeah, I go to the Normandy. The best fungi. Oh, the best fungi. You know the the airport travel lodge. Beautiful fungi. I saw that on Lonely Planet. Yeah. Oh, right. It was so good. That episode was fantastic. I had to go and stay a night, but for some reason it didn't take. <laughs> um. Actually, I have a hostile nail. Oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. You do. <laughs> you know, if you want to cultivate it, put some sugar water on it. It'll spread nice. <laughs> Actually, Greg, I've had a like a kind of odd career for myself. And um, recently but I had a, a career, but a career. I've had a career. And um, I, the guy I've been bragging the most about is great because there's you are a driven guy who makes a narrative film what every other year practically since we I met try to do one every two years there you go and the narrative film has has eluded my entire career i've had you know projects like actual hollywood projects you know i had a bungalow at the warner lot um, yeah the warner lot and, you know, I thought I was going to make a movie and then it went away. And, you know, I just I look at it and I say, gee whiz, you know, who cares? I directed 390 music videos. 
who gives a you know i can i curse i can say whatever yeah, who gives a facebook yeah. who gives a yeah. fuck i don't you know like in the end that's why i started doing documentaries is i had a kid and i started thinking about oh is he gonna want to watch this like is he gonna care that i spent so much time doing music videos so i could get free records is that really like something i should be doing and so i started you know trying to make documentaries which what, what i've been doing for the last 20 some odd years but I look at Greg's career and, you know, he gets them made, he gets them financed. Whenever I see the thing that he needs a little bit of money, I give him a little bit of money, you know. And, so um, and so, you know, cause I want him to do well because he's, he's following the dream that we all had at the beginning, you know, like this dream to, to make these wonderful things. Movies are wonderful, wonderful things. And they're the most difficult art to do because you can't do it alone. And I once described it as it's kind of like you grab a dragon by the tail and then you beat it until it's a guinea pig. And that's that's kind of what you do is you're just it's such an overwhelming thing. And in the end, you get a, you have to get control of it. And the fact that Greg gets to do it, you know, not on huge budgets, not with a lot of support. It's all blood, sweat and tears. and they're always entertaining and that's a great thing so sure. let him entertain us <laughs> thank you and he's e he's eating more he is eating more he's yeah. well there's more of him definitely well, i have a new film out now and what that means is i don't know how i'm paying next month's mortgage so that's pretty much uh how my life has gone <laughs> working on these indie films well but i'm proud that you're making them Thank you. Yes. I will tell you, I, I encourage uh, young filmmakers to work on a film for free, a feature for free, if it's something that they're going to learn on. Don't work for free necessarily on a film with people who don't know what they're doing. I mean, sometimes you have to because they're your friends, but it's worth the learning experience. When I did my last one, Guns of Eden, now out, I interviewed a, a, a college kid. And I said, look, it's a crowdfunded film. I, I'm not paying for PAs. I'm looking for a few interns. And I promise you that uh, we're, we're actually going to have a curriculum to make sure you come out of this fully trained as a PA. And this kid, uh, Alex, God bless him, he said to me, I will quit my job to work on this film. And that was like, oh, my God, I found <laughs> one. And he Full found film. So you look for that kind of enthusiasm and hope people get something out of it when they work on these. Yeah. I mean, I always tell I always tell the young kids when the young kids call me or come up to me right. and they say, how can I have a career like yours? I said, kid, you only got one thing. You certainly don't know how to boil a, uh, an extension cord. But what I say is you have sweat equity. You have the privilege of living at home or living in some circumstances where you have some assistance paying your bills and you can work for free. And that's the only way you're ever gonna learn is when you come to the set just to see what everybody else is doing and to find your place. Um, I cannot tell you how many people I've been at the, like the start of their career where they had to go on, you know, and they've done you know, better in some respects than me, but they've gone on from just having that exposure of working for free on some movie. I mean, we all, the three of us worked for free on this movie. I worked for free on, you know, a bunch of movies. I was there when the uh, decision to use the sound man 
as the toxic avenger the, in the beginning you know and before he becomes the toxic avenger because mm -hmm. he had the, he had no chin we were sitting there going like oh this guy didn't show up the nerdy guy did not show up and then we all did this another another exclusive on the show neil oh go. very nice uh, i'm uh, <laughs> friends with mark tour yeah. he's oh. in my movie um the once in future smash now playing festivals uh let's see here uh let's ask a couple more here um Eric James Greg was right about George's early comedic origin. Ask him if he recalls the Michael Sarzinski, I think, radio show. I was there with him and others from high school. In high school, I got called to be on a I, I got asked to be a, a, on a radio show representing the school. And um, I just had way too much fun. And um, you know, I was far more goofy than I am today. Is it Greg's walking out of the room now? No, no, but, no. no. I'm trying. I'm trying to improve the lighting here. Oh, I look no, at you guys, good. and you look good. good. And there's no reason why you guys should look good, and I should not. That's right. This looks really cool. There, there, there is one reason. I won't. I won't here's go into it. Frame, but there okay? is one reason. <laughs> that's right. We we both look much better than you. Um, <laughs> No, but so that's that's what it is. So I, I ended up on a radio show and then he had me back like six or seven times. I had like a regular segment in high school on regular radio. So just from having too much fun on the radio, I think I had to let me go because I said something bad. Okay. I said what I said earlier on actual WABC radio. Don't we it lost didn't work out for you like it did for Howard Stern? No, it didn't work out for me. But anyway, that's funny stuff. <laughs> so what's going on with Craig? Is he uh, losing his... He says he'll be right there. He's not. All right. Yet. What? So you got another question? Uh, Sue, I uh, enjoyed this. Uh, had to curb drinking all the water. I want during this not to be spitting it out with your humor. That's very <laughs> nice of her to say. And uh, Mimi wants to know, besides the obvious, what are your guys' favorite zombie movie? Um, for me, it's Dawn of the Dead, but I have to say Shaun of the Dead is a close second. And on some years I say, ah, Shaun of the Dead's my favorite. I'm with you. I like Shaun of the Dead too, but Dawn of the Dead definitely always been my favorite. Yeah. The original the 3D one. experience was amazing. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. I, I, I've been really enjoying yeah. these, uh, these, uh, recent 3D, uh, feel that and Jaws was really fun. Both of them were good, but dawn of the dead really blew me away except for whenever a head exploded um because it the shots needed to be extended for 3d it was like startling that everything would start flying in your face and then it would right. cut away yeah so they needed a little re-edit there i think for that to have worked they could have just slowed it down a little bit maybe but um nice. I, I didn't get to see those but yeah i love night of the living dead i like that you know for me I, i'm a i'm like a real old movie person in a way, you know, I like, uh, but I do think Shaun of the Dead is a movie I have seen multiple times because I'm big on multiple times, uh, which unlike um, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, I've not seen those movies more than once or twice since they came out. I know, I know, but I've seen Shaun of the Dead like three times since it's come out. So it's very entertaining. Those guys are very entertaining. You know, I had a, uh, a film theory professor at SVA. I went, did you have Joan Braderman? At all. yeah sure 
she was my film theory teacher and man was she amazing she was this radical left leftist feminist and she used to tell us in class you never begin to see a film until the second time and when you're living in new york city you should go see every movie which means if you want to see every movie you got to see it twice well i looked her up a few years ago i was just curious you know she's teaching up in new england now um, and I said, uh, do you still recommend that people see everything that's out in the theaters? And she was like, God, no. <laughs> like, she's just acknowledging what's happened to the, the movie business. I have her go favorite zombie movies. Theater. Yeah. You have Craig, a favorite? Craig, uh, Mimi wants to know everyone's favorite zombie movies. Uh, Greg was uh, Dawn of the Dead and Shaun of the Dead. And George was Night of the Living Dead. And also, he liked Shaun of the Dead. Uh, well, I, I like, um, I think I prefer night of the living dead to, uh, dawn of the dead. Although, you know, dawn of the dead is a great one. Uh, but Shaun of the dead is, is awesome. You know, there's just, there's just nothing, there's nothing like, uh, th that sort of comedic reattacking of, of that particular genre. So those two, those two are my favorites. And of course I was a teenage zombie right up there, way up there. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was more like, what is your second favorite after? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, 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 I'll take that proviso. Other than um, movies you appeared in, yeah. <laughs> your favorite zombie movies. So, uh, George, uh, you might mention making uh, documentaries. Do you have anything uh, in the works currently? I, I have, I have two. I just finished one called um, called um, Keeping Up with the Joneses, about uh, three brothers who are jazz musicians. Hank Jones, Thad Jones, and Elvin Jones. Each one is a is a famous sideman who is very important to the development of jazz. Hank Jones was a he 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 actually is the person who plays the piano for Marilyn Monroe when she think, sings "Happy Birthday, Mr. President." But he was uh, Ella Fitzgerald's piano player. He was the he was the, the head of the CBS Orchestra. Um, Elvin Jones is a world famous drummer, and he's right now he's pretty much. Outside of rock drummers, he is considered like the high watermark of uh, drum playing. And Thad Jones was very important in the evolution of the Count Basie Orchestra. And that's that. And then I have one on Willie Tyler and Lester called Hello Dummy, which um, is in post-production right now. We're about the, we have a nice 48-minute cut of half of it. And we're working on that other half, getting the scenes done. And it's just filled with, you know, like I have Margaret Cho, Pee Wee Herman, oh, cool. um, David Arquette. I mean, it's just filled with, Shecky Green is in it. Talk about shit. <laughs> he tells a great story in the movie. Uh, we have Gilbert Gottfried's in it. Um, Chris Rock. Oh, um, but um, Shecky is tells Gilbert Gottfried talking in it? Oh, yeah. He, tell, he tells a great story, too. <laughs> he tells a story. He goes, he goes, and let me tell you, he, um, Willie and I did a TV show in the 1970s. So I say, hey, Willie, where's your partner? And he gestures. And there's a burlap sack in the corner. And every time Willie went past it, he'd throw some hot coffee on him. I'm like, he's, he's torturing this poor man, this poor puppet. You know, he goes, and then I remember that, that torturing a puppet was a euphemism back in World War II for masturbation. It'd be two guys in a foxhole. Excuse me, old chap. I have to turn around and torture the puppet. And yet we won World War II. 
And that's his story. No thanks to puppets. I'm torturing the puppet. So so, um, Shaky tells the story. He goes, he goes, hey, did I ever tell you? And we never met him before. It was the one day, you know, the shoot. We put it together. He says, did I ever tell you at the time uh, Frank Sinatra saved my life? And we're like, no. And he said, he said, I'm, I used to work at this casino and I could walk home from there. So one night I'm walking home and these five guys jump out of a car and they start beating me and they're beating me and they're beating me and the lights are getting dim. And I know that this is it. I'm going to be dead soon. And then I hear Frank say, okay, boys, he's had enough. And that was the truth. (laughs) And how about yourself, Craig? Uh, Do you have anything in the works? Uh, I'm a um, I'm a spec screenwriter, so I've got about three projects that are percolating and uh, we'll see if anything comes of them. I'm you know, one of them. One of them looks to be looks to be moving forward. We'll we'll see. Um, I can't. That's a that's the frustrating thing, though, because once (laughs) once there's some interest, you suddenly can't talk about it (laughs) until it's either, you know, they're ready to take out ads and variety or you know, whatever. So I, I spend a lot of my time not talking about what I'm doing. <laughs> right. When Fair you get enough. the email from deadline Hollywood and it says what happened, it happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When somebody calls and says, what do you know about this project? Then I can talk about that project. Robert is WGA in the writer's guild. Oh, and uh, Greg, how about yourself? Guns of Eden. I'm sorry. What was the question? What do you have in the works or what people buy it now? Guns of Eden. Guns of Eden is out right now. It's only three ninety nine to rent on uh, Amazon. There's another film out uh, that I wrote the screenplay for called Showdown in Yesteryear, which is a fantasy Western about a guy from our time who goes back in time. And it's the first thing I've written that's got like mainstream romance and comedy in it. So that was really fun to do. And honestly, uh, the guys did a great job producing and directing it without me. It's, it's a really good film. Uh, Vernon Wells, who was the Mohawk guy in the road warriors in it and Deborah lamb. And, uh, I believe I'm about to start co-producing a comedy that's very Buffalo centric that we could be shooting in six weeks. Um, and I'm still trying to get my my werewolf project off the ground. That's that's the thing I want to do myself, but it but I have to work on other people's films to pay bills. So I'm glad to be working on a film that may be about the bills. Vernon Wells yelled at me once because uh, I thought his character in uh, in Road Warrior uh the, the the guy was gay with, with the with the with the young with like the twink kind right. of character and he's like no that's that's my son in the movie and i was like oh well, i don't think anyone else knows this either uh, <laughs> then you say your son would make a great twink <laughs> i remember that makeout scene pretty well <laughs> all right tell yourself what well, you maybe, maybe they're not mutually exclusive and it's a really different movie i don't know <laughs> But I, I like Vernon Wells. He's a very cool guy. He's been on the he's show. He's great in this film. I mean, I, I don't know him personally, but he's yeah. really good. Yeah, and he's a really he's, uh, big animal lover. He like uh, has like a, I think he uh, for uh, uh, people who uh, like they adopt they, they get wolves sick and they make good pets and then they don't and they try to get rid of them and he he adopts them and has like a big area that he keeps them, which I think is cool. I just want to. 
I want to I want to double back real quick to Guns of Eden, though, because, um, you know, it's, it, you know, Greg has wanted to do like a Rambo movie for a while <laughs> since since Rambo and um, and he did like a female centric Rambo movie and it's awesome. So, mm-hmm. you know, check it out if, I if you know any anyone anyone that's interested in a the feminist battle and and b the sort of a red state satire kind of a thing um it's it's just a it's a great movie so be sure to check it out if you you know if you like if you like the genre it's awesome yeah it's great i i i want to see the finished cut because i saw a previous cut to have greg on and the cast and it didn't have the sound and, and everything yet. So I, I want to see the actual finish. When yeah. we did the uh, first script reading with a cast on Zoom, I had Robert come on and read the narration. Because I'm a good reader. That's correct. <laughs> I, I, I held been. on to that lesson. Variety, four stars, reading. What a read. I'm now the award for best reading. Greg <laughs> He reads like no one else. <laughs> yeah i definitely check it out yeah i know it's a horror show but i watch all kinds of movies i'm sure people watching this do as well right be well-rounded uh getting back to uh vernon wells just for a second and this is more for robert's benefit he plays the big boss of the town and i named him orson kane uh (laughs) if you remember we went and saw a citizen kane in the theater like cinema village or h3 playhouse and i slept through most of it yes but. yes yeah no i i, <laughs> I, I saw it eventually that. yeah yeah no it, it <laughs> you know it it you can you can see that film by osmosis you know just a clip here a clip there somebody talking about this innovation or whatever um but i i have to say i except for one showing of jabberwocky when i was 17 i have never fallen asleep in a movie i've fallen <laughs> asleep in so many yeah usually because during a shoot, I don't go to movies and then I need to catch up after the mm-hmm. shoot. Yeah. And I just get in those seats and I'm out. Air conditioning, comfortable seat. I'm dead. Dead. Yeah. I've woken up in the theater in the morning. Ooh. When we oh, wow. in the movie theater, I would go, you know, like in the summertime when it was hot. <laughs> and if I hadn't seen the movie, I'd make sure I was there. And sometimes I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up. You know, when when the when the projectionist came in and started running the film backward, you know, rewinding the film and you know yelling at his wife on the telephone or something i would oh, where am i oh, in the theater okay great but you know it's you sh- you got to stop going to see movies dressed up as popcorn that's right i, I dress up like maybe they notice the you yeah. it's a piece of carpeting with popcorn on me and and juju bees all stuck in there and i lay down on the floor i fall asleep. uh one thing when Joan Braverman said that you should watch every movie twice, that was a time when you could actually see movies twice. Um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, my parents were about the worst people to ever become parents. They're actually doing a commemorative medal for them that they will be selling. Um, and so I spent almost three days at a double feature in New York City. And you had all these great revival houses you had the uh, the St. Mark's Theater, which was two movies for a dollar. Mm-hmm. You had uh, the Thalia, the Regency. Um, there's a, there were two in the Times Square region. And you could just go and see two movies. Sometimes they were connected in some way. Sometimes they weren't. But it didn't really matter because you got to watch these two movies that you probably normally wouldn't have seen. Uncut, which was very um, 
you know, sometimes you'd see a movie. Um, I'll tell you a story about a movie I saw. I had only seen it on television as a kid growing up. And uh, some friends said, hey, you want to take mushrooms? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to take mushrooms. And so we went and we went to the to the A Street Playhouse and we waited and we went into the theater and the movie started just like I always remembered it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> Everything's in color. It was The Wizard of Oz and I'd never seen it in color. I'd only seen it on black and white television. So it was a big, you know, big shot. Very eye opening. I, I got to say, there is something to the double feature experience that has, I think, been lost and I think I think is due for revival because, you know, just having a curated double feature uh, that you have to go to a theater, you watch, it's a good value, all of that stuff. There's just something you you just you just chew it up. It's it's awesome. It's great stuff. Yeah, I and, used to do them until recently. I would call them secret cinemas and it would be people would come and they'd do a donation so I could pay for the rental of the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't promote the movies because I didn't have the rights to them. But as long as they're ah. renting it as a party, I can show whatever I want. And then I, I would see. surprise them. And sometimes the movies are too long. and I can just do one, but I've done a bunch of double features. Fantastic. That's, That's awesome. That is awesome. There's yeah. just something, there's something about it. It's just, you know, it's its own, its own thing. Do you remember our double feature that we went to? I'm not talking about at home when we watched alone double feature. I'm talking about the double feature we went to. Who's we? Me and Robert. Where'd you go? We see? went to a few. Uh, this was a key one because it was the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Hills of Eyes. At the I do remember that. And I remember oh. being terrified of, of the Hills Have Eyes. I was like, I, and I think they, this was a, it was a very late show and they were showing like midnight midnight movie uh previews and one of them was savage man savage beast and with lions eating people and i like actually got sick and then we you know and then we watched this double feature yes i totally remember that i was grateful that i had never managed to see those two films and got to see them for the first time in a theater yeah that's awesome that's (laughs) the the bald guy right in the hills have eyes yeah michael barry i did i did a commercial with him and he, <laughs> he he played it for laughs, but he was such a sweet guy. Yeah, he and I kept like nice I, my brain was like I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. Like it was just like acting, but not really. You know, it was just <laughs> it was just fantastic. Um, I I came out suicidal from a double feature. Um, it was um, of Mice and Men and Midnight Cowboy, which obviously has a connection. But at the end of Midnight Cowboy, it was I was at the Carnegie Hall Theater in the basement of the Carnegie Hall. I remember. And, uh, I stepped out on the street and it had been snowing, you know, like four hours before. So there's nothing like New York City after a snowfall, which is basically slush of the gray and black variety. And it was very quiet. And so I didn't know what to do. So I decided I was going to walk through Central Park to get my brain around it. It was like probably... I never had the sense of, of actual danger anywhere in New York city, even with people shooting guns, I was like, Oh, it's not going to hit me. And so I walked through central park, which was all snow and I'm trudging through this snow and thinking about it. And I'm like, going, I could fall now and die and it would be fine because (laughs) (laughs) and I, I felt so miserable. And then this, I hear this voice. Hey, Ed, you're walking on the ice. 
and I was standing in the middle of the lake in the, the southern <laughs> lake in in uh, in the park, and I could have actually broken through the ice and, and sure. died. And Hot dog vendor yeah. like caught me. And that guy that warned you, Shecky Green. Exactly. It was Shecky. <laughs> hey, get no, it, hey. It was Maury Amsterdam. Frank Sinatra. In all honesty, if you want to know, it was Maury Amsterdam. The royalties <laughs> just weren't great. <laughs> Neil, I had a great laugh in your email when you said the podcast show usually lasts about an hour. Right. I right. knew <laughs> I knew we would be able to mine much more material than for an hour. How long were we yeah. doing this? Almost time. two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I usually right? tell people an hour and uh, whatever it goes. I, I'm good with however long it goes, but yeah. yeah. What know. movie were we talking about? Did <laughs> we come on the show to discuss? Well, you got any the more questions? Cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a great time to talk with all of you. It's been very fun. Thank you. This is a great Christmas present and, uh, and your background equally great. That's oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. So I yeah. I'm going to go out and get some garlands and some Sprinkly lights and I'm I'm down. <laughs> Excellent. I, I was afraid that the I didn't know when I got the ones that turn on and off. I, I didn't know that they did that, so I didn't know if it was distracting. But whatever. It's great. It's great. Very festive. Has been wonderful seeing all three of my friends. Neil, I hope you make it back to Buffalo Dreams. Yeah, soon. I would love to I go back. Yeah. These, uh, these past years, George, we maybe we got to show your uh, docs, your documentaries. I I, I can send you one. So we'll have to discuss that. Okay. Yeah, it's great seeing you, George. Great seeing you again. You. Yeah. Great seeing. Great meeting you, Neil. But great Thank seeing you. these guys. I mean, we spent a lot of time like in a war. You know, we were like in the trenches. You know, yeah, we were in the trenches. You know, we we're in the foxhole. Oh, so we served together. I have to uh, choke the uh, whatever torture the puppet, oh, but. Okay. <laughs> You know, it's 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 great to see we're we're alive and we're here and we're still doing stuff and that's great. And doing shtick. And shtick. Lots of shtick. Doing shtick. Kidding me? <laughs> of course, I'm so happy. Yeah, and thanks everyone for uh, tuning out. A lot of cool. Uh, a lot of people posted stuff in the chat, and uh, I was happy to see that. And I really liked the movie, and it was fun to watch again. People go and check it out. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, go go and watch. I was a teenager zombie. You can see my hair. HBO Max and, and Craig's hair as well. Yes, and the and the uh, and the Curse of the Boom Shadow. My exactly. color was there, <laughs> and you had color. Boy, yes. you have color. Did you work with David Caruso at the at the movie theater? <laughs> no, but I was going to say the other person who passed through the cinemas who was there when both Robert and I were there, who would be of interest to in Neil, would be James Lorenz from. Street trash and uh, Frankenberger, and I j he was at SVA at the same time as me, and and from the theater I kind of avoided him because he was just this guy walking around doing these weird voice imitations. <laughs> and I was just like, what a, what a weird guy. Yeah. And then I saw one of his short films at SVA, and it was great. And when I heard that he basically stole Street Trash and that they added a bunch of footage with him, I wasn't the least bit surprised. But he was like separate from us. He just was under the same roof at the same time. Now, I once, I, I once actually had a. He got me so angry, you know, because I was older, because I had been a painting major, and um, I wrote a paper for William K. Everson to keep my scholarship afloat. And the great I, William K. Everson, the great William K. Everson, Let's talked and, about Everson and Joan Braderman. There you go. I mean, we had some good people. So I got so angry at James Lorenz that I picked him up over my head and I started screaming at him. And then everyone was looking at me like you picked him up. 
like what? And I got so upset. I, I walked out of the room, but he, he was very annoying. And I just felt like, like, what is this guy going to do? What the hell's wrong with him? Because he is a very quirky fellow. And it was surprising to see him on the Emmy Awards winning an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor on a TV show. It was like a big surprise. Like, he, he actually turned this into a, oh, it's shtick. <laughs> but the funny thing about that story, George, is you are not a tall man. No. How did you pick it? You guys were like the same height. How did well, he was, like, he was like your weight, right, so at that time. He was like at 120 right. pounds. Right. And and I could lift 120 pounds and I lifted him and he started, you know, the two of us are screaming, like he's afraid. And I'm, I'm like insane. Like I, I almost never lose my temper and he just pushed all the buttons nonstop because he's a nudgy guy, you know, like he'd walk around the movie theater doing you know. all these weird voices would come out and he'd be talking to himself. <laughs> well, he was rehearsing shtick. Exactly. He was creating the James Lorenz experience. Went on to have a career. I did bring him uh, with Frumkus to, uh, to Buffalo once uh, to show some films. Liked him very much. I would, I would actually like to work with him if, uh, if I ever got the budget to do a SAG film. Yeah, because those SAG rules are not as uh, favorable as they once were. No, it's impossible. Sorry, Neil. No, no, I was uh, <laughs> just getting something ready here. But uh... is it nice? What are they saying? Are they talking oh, the about chat? Me? Oh, yeah. No, the chat's been uh, great. Uh, they've. Uh, uh, Sue Fi says, I would love to see some of George's documentaries. Um, February. Said, Billy Strayhorn Lush Life on PBS, your local PBS station. And if they're not showing in at your local PBS station, call them up and say, if you want my $10 for, for my PBS app to work, put this movie on. February is when they play that sort of thing. And it's uh, Rob Levy and I made this film. We spent the uh, documentaries are a long slog. So it's like, it, it's like we, we worked a month and two weekends when I was a teenage zombie and I worked five years on Billy Strayhorn. Um, I'm, I'm on six years on, uh, on Willie Tyler and I did 10 years or more on uh, the Jones brothers. So, it's, it's it's a it's passion eventually you make some money but if you were to get paid an hourly rate you realize that it costs you like 200 dollars an hour to make the film by the time you make any money but it's about telling a story that means something to you and by the way greg i was not i was not trying not to pay attention when i look this way i have multiple screens to do the show and uh i read the chat over on this screen that's over here. i wasn't even looking at you I just yeah, realized I that I had gone off. Oh, on no worries. Okay. I, I was <laughs> reading. I was, also, I was I What's amazing is that Greg looks like a grown man now. The last time <laughs> I, I saw him, he looked like a teenager. That's true. Well, I was. I think I was 19. <laughs> well, that's a good reason then. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jimmy McGuire, this is so much fun. You guys are all hilarious. And the behind the scenes stories were so much uh, so cool to hear. Uh, Fuzzball Productions. I'll be rewatching it with all of this new knowledge. Yes. And uh, and Sue again. Yes, great, uh, great to be alive. Yes, I that was in reference earlier. You said everyone's alive. So. <laughs> it's great to be alive. I'm glad. I'm so happy that at least the three of us are. Oh, I have to. I want to plug something. Can I plug something? Yeah, of course. 
I, I write for a blog called it came from Hollywood.net. And uh, they pretty much one of the things that I like about work now is when somebody says, I want you to do something for me and you can do whatever the hell you want to do. And so I've been writing. Uh, sometimes I write about something I did or a lot of it turns out I, I have a lot of knowledge about uh, silent films, which I really didn't know I had until I wanted to make sure that they were correct. And so I'd go back and do the research after I wrote the piece and I'd be like, wow, I knew that. How did I know that? You know, and I have a big collection of photographs from silent movies and production of silent movies. And uh, I will write about those movies. I must have at some point heard a story from some old guy because we used to get like silent screen actors in the movie theater that we worked at. I had, uh, I worked the premiere of a movie called Ghost Story which had Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Lillian Gish and Fred Astaire. And so I was a candy girl entertaining the three of them while they were waiting. And Fred Astaire's wife was much younger and she was horsey. And the three of them were talking like old friends. And this younger woman, she must have gone to the bathroom like 11 times. And, you know, she was like, are you sure? Is this butter? And I said, no, it's partially hydrogenated soybean oil with the artificial yellow flavor. And she was like, oh, don't put it on my popcorn, you know. <laughs> but um it's um you know it was it was a great time and i you know some of these stories i i probably got them firsthand and they became like stuck in my head so it's it's a really great blog it's a lot of fun and a lot of i met them from i was a teenage zombie actually they didn't work on the film but they asked me a lot of questions about it rob Fries, the editor um asked me a lot of questions and i answered them but yeah, then check it out I yeah think you got the answers right yeah, let's hope. <laughs> Otherwise, theaters, you wouldn't have that free reign. That's right. One of uh, the coolest theater experiences uh, was a few years ago. Well, I guess it's more than a few years ago. It was several years ago. Um, for Halloween, they showed the the silent uh, Phantom of the Opera with the Boston Orchestra playing the the music, and that was like one of the coolest experiences yeah, for me. So in, cool in theater. Yeah, I like when they do that. You mentioned the Thalia. I think I worked at the Metro when they did a Buster Keaton festival and brought in the organist, and that was really cool. That was, it's it's so cool when you get the feeling uh, for what that was like. You know, I love silent film when you've got like live music, like that guy playing the organ, like it's a hockey game, but it's not. It's you know Buster Keaton getting knocked around, and it's it's really magic. I live um, in Harlem. And about two blocks from my house is the what's left of the first building that was made specifically to show movies in New York City. And it's now a a hybrid, which everybody's doing something where they can make money. It's a pediatrician's office that is also a graffiti art gallery. And every day, every like six weeks, he has the entire thing painted white and then graffiti artists come and the graffiti up the whole place. And kids come in, you know, his justification is that the kids grow up in a neighborhood, but there's a lot of graffiti and it can be art. So here's art inside as well. But on the on the top of the of the facade of the front portion, the you know, where you would walk in is um, is a medallion and it has a hand cranked film camera on the very top. And, you know, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, who's what is this building? And then I realized that there was a time when the entire block you know, Broadway, where I live, um, all the way up to the bridge where we used to go for I was a teenage zombie, I was filled with all these movie theaters 
and it was called the Upper Broadway Corridor, and it was considered off-Broadway. So my grocery store was the Majestic Theater, and Mae West did one of her out-of-town runs for the play Sex there. Um, The Warner Brothers built the grade school in my neighborhood because their brother, who made the jazz singer, died up here because he got a sinus infection because he was trying to make sure that his brothers didn't steal the sound system and sell it and recut the jazz singer as a silent film. Why they would do that, who knows? But it's where they showed it the first time was right here. And so there's the RKO Hamilton, which has uh, naked topless women holding their boobs on the outside. And they had women protesting it when they opened it in 1930. It's, you know, it's just an interesting little aside. But I love this old crap, obviously. And I gave you some old crap. I'm glad that we've talked about theaters so much because I am fascinated with theaters. And uh, here in the great city of Buffalo, we had the Vitagraph Theater, which was the first dedicated movie theater in the country. The building wasn't built for it, but they devoted space into it. And it was the first uh, historically movie theater. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Vitagraph started in Buffalo, didn't it? Before it moved to Brooklyn? Yep. Those guys worked like we did on zombies. We need to do something to roll back the uh, uh, the migration of churches into movie theaters. We need to we need to reverse that. We need more movie theaters, yeah. fewer, fewer churches, churches in them. Well, yeah, you know, in, in on Flatbush Avenue, they actually redid one. They put it back to a theater. Oh, that's great! I love it's to hear that. It's called the King Theater. Look it up. It is. I I took a like an early date, like like a sixth grade or a seventh grade date to see um to see the poseidon adventure and um i think the girl was expecting some action from me but the movie was just so hypnotic i was completely <laughs> lost and i ignored her and she didn't talk to me again until seventh grade <laughs> uh, something like that happened to me once too oh, such a wonderful film <laughs> watch I mean, the movie <laughs> and it, it was a palace and it it was just amazing just a palace so they they do special shows. They did uh, Mystery Science Theater did like a week in New York and they did it the show there, the mm. live show. But it's cool. beautiful. Look it up. The King Theater. But all those yeah. theaters on Flatbush all looked like that at one time. Yeah, it's yeah. sad. I mean, all over the country, this this whole multiplex plague, what it's done to so many beautiful theaters. Yeah, I was glad uh, my favorite theater in, Bo- in the Boston area, it's actually in Brookline, uh, Coolidge Corner Theater. And it's I think it's there since the 20s the 1920s uh not the 2020s and uh but they they thought it was going to close during the pandemic but people uh sent in money and it, it stayed open and uh it's doing good it's doing good again they i go there for a lot of weird midnight movies and they do yeah good so they preserve the the interior somewhat yeah yeah it's, it's pretty much exactly yeah that's cool yeah, i think yeah, they put in new like seats as all too. but yeah it's kind of frustrating here in south pass uh there's a theater called the rialto which you've seen in a bunch of bunch of movies and tv shows it's always oh, like the great. empty empty abandoned theater on uh, mm-hmm. on fair oaks and now it's you know a church has taken over it um and it really frustrates me because there's been these um movements to like save the rialto save the rialto and south pasadena is a very rich little enclave and they couldn't get it together to save this movie theater 
from the encroaching church. <laughs> Were they able to save the Cinerama Dome out there, or did that go away? I think it's still there. I don't think it's think open. The building's there. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's closed. And so many of those beautiful Hollywood theaters, I, I added, my, my wife never wants to go go to L.A., and I finally prevailed upon her to come with me to L.A., and I said, look, at least a full quarter of our marriage, I've been in the city of Los Angeles, and you've never come here, so you're going to come with me this time, and so we came, and, and the, I wanted to, you know, so I gave her the Cinerama Dome. We went and watched the stupid movie in the Cinerama Dome, but it's such a cool place, and these beautiful old theaters, you know, like the Chinese theater is beautiful, but that that you know that hollywood area just has these gorgeous old movie theaters that are just falling apart and it's a town filled with millionaires yeah but they hate houses all day they hate movies that's the thing new york <laughs> is a movie town la is not a movie town it's a movie it's the business of movies but not right. movies nobody likes movies out here which is maddening I, you told me that once before years ago, and I passed that on to my friend, Chris Ray, Fred Olin Ray's son, who's, who's an L.A. filmmaker. And he said, bullshit, I go see every movie that comes out. And he, he rattled off the title of every film in release, and he had gone to see every one of them. So there are some people. <laughs> yeah, no, the people are here. You know, it's just not not generally the way the way of it. You know, everyone is like they'll they'll go they'll go see movies at the screening <laughs> that they worked on. Uh, but they, you know, they're just not interested for the most part. And I actually, when I, when I got my job at USC, uh, I had an interview with a very famous, very famous writer. And, uh, he said, yeah, I don't go to movies anymore. I don't go to the movie theaters anymore. I was like, I go, <laughs> I go every chance I get. Um, this was of course pre pandemic, but it's just, you know, there's just a burnout up, up here. That's not, not great. I, I I'm going to confess screeners have screwed up my mm. movie going habits there are it's yep. to go to the theater to pay you know okay i'm a little old so i can get a senior citizen's ticket which is only three dollars savings but it's a lot when you, go with, you know and so you know i i really wait like half the movies that i would normally want to see in the theater you know, like if they're if they're close personal things, I'll wait to see if the screeners come for that movie. I'll wait. You know, like I I don't want to invest going to the movies and seeing it if it's not going to give me something that I need the movie for. You know, like I need to have. You know, if I'm going to spend the, the sizable amount, and luckily my kids in vet school, so he's never around to go to the movies. But when I would go with him and a friend and my wife and you know my nephew and whatever, and we you know I buy six tickets, eight tickets. You know now I'm in for like 150. You know, and then oh popcorn candy, we got to have that. So we're you know stuffing them in our pockets, so we sneak in with everything, and it's just you know it. it I need to have that extra. Just, I need that only a movie can give you. Yeah, I know exactly. I. I, I New York City, when we were working at the movie theater, people would line up around the block to get into Cinema 2, and it was snowing, and they would say, are you going to let us in? It's snowing, and we'd, and we'd say, hey, we can't uh, claim your wardrobe <laughs> for you. you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and they just, they just, you know, went right around the corner, and now I go to, like, the first 
uh, you know, the first showing of a movie and I have no problem getting in. I, I went to see, went to see glass onion in the theater and just waltzed right in. No problem. No problem getting in. No one's waiting outside. It's, it's just a different, wow. it's a different time and a different place. Yeah. It hasn't bounced back from the pandemic for one thing. The art house crowd is gone. It's never coming back. It's just so sad that these theaters we're talking about that we worked at the specialized field it's dead it's yeah. it's go- whatever it, there is is going to streaming unless it's you know downton abbey the movie right. you know pretend art film they're they're just not coming back and i've uh, i watched the the searching for mr rugoff documentary which is about cities about cinema five i watched it about a month ago and i've been profoundly uh depressed over the state of the, not just those theaters, but what's happening now with streaming and theatricals. And, and now we're seeing that everything migrated uh, to the streaming platforms. And now all of a sudden they're cutting shows out and they're doing crazy things. And that whole thing that had absorbed the industry, it's now changing so fast that we don't even know what that's going to be. It's like, mm-hmm. if you remember, like, when we were kids, right? Nobody had a computer. And if you did, you played Pong on it. And, you know, exactly. And, you know, nobody had, your phone had a wire on it. You know, all your data was thrown on your, in front of your house, left there in a big book with lots of pages in it that had every information about your family in it. You know, your parents, whatever, your address, your phone number, your zip code was all there in a book left out on the street. and you know, so the world changed so dramatically from like 1983 to now, right? It, it's insane. And streaming is the same sort of thing. It's like CDs, right? You can't charge three times as much for something you can make yourself. You can copy yourself, right? And you can't have 200,000 streaming channels because you had 50 cable channels and there was still nothing on and now you have 200,000 channels and there ain't nothing on either because it's just too much to figure it out. So you look, Disney has like six different streaming platforms, right? Well, they're going to have to, they're going to have to consolidate those. NBC is going to have to consolidate those. We don't need Peacock and Universal and all these other things. We just need one and like give us, you know, 200 titles a month. So we can go through them if we really want them, you know, and I think we're in a golden age of television now, but I yearn for an hour and a half movie. I'll even I think, take a two hour movie. I think the golden age of television is ending now because of what's happening with these streamers all of a sudden, HBO Max and these different things. I, I think, I think they're killing something big time. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some of the best shows I have ever seen in my entire freaking life in the last like three years. I, I saw this Andrew Garfield show under the clouds of heaven. Did you see this? No, I didn't see it yet. No. Oh Hulu. my God. Yeah. Hulu. It's amazing. It's not just good. It's amazing. It's a relationship you would never see. It's a dynamic you would never see. And they tell you the entire story of the Mormon church and it, Nothing seems false. Everything feels right about the show. It's an amazing show. And it's just like 
just the people they're giving exposure to, like reservation dogs. Those kids are hysterical. They're amazing. And they yeah, shoot, shoot it with them. I mean, it's amazing. And there was one I really enjoyed called We Are Lady Parts about a m- Muslim women in a punk rock band. <laughs> Very entertaining. Um, but just people and things and stories that we haven't heard in this, be- you know, television has become it's such an intimate experience. And this big constriction is going to, you know, it's going to put the effort back on writers to come up with good programming for these streamers to do. And they can't, you know, they can't offer everything, you know, and we don't need, I think we don't need these shows where, uh, you know, where like you get, get, let's, let's get seven spoiled housewives from Dubuque, Iowa and put them in a fancy apartment and then just watch the crazy shit happen. Because what happens is the production manager says, you know, she said you were fat in the last episode. You're going to let her get away with that? You called me fat? And there's a fist fight. Oh, that's great television. No. You know, and. A lot of I those think, shows, though. A lot of those well, shows. Well, because you don't have to pay a writer. The yeah. producer's the writer. Horrible. But, you know, I just. I you have above deck, below deck. Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, garbage men of the. You know, Las Vegas, you know. Hey, what'd you find? Oh, I found this head. Oh, what do we do with it? I don't know. <laughs> Is it pretty? You know, nah. It's got maggots. Okay, next. I, you know. Kids today. Kids today. I mean, I would love to, like, oh, well, we're going to give you a two and a half hour Marvel movie. That's going to cost you $25. Or you could see, you know, an, an hour and, you know, 60, you know, an hour and 30 minute, you know, mystery, you know, with Bulldog Drummer, and that costs you, you know, six dollars to see at the movie theater. I'd be at the movie theater every day if I had like an option like that. Even the early show is like 14 bucks here. Mm-hmm. I, I go to the movies multiple times a week, but I do use the AMC app and it's $22 or something, and then you get to see three up to three movies a week, uh, which even if you see two movies it pays for it so i you know i go every week and see three movies you see a lot you see i see everything and it is kind of fun because i'll see movies that i would probably not go see in the theater because it's like oh well i still have one pass i'll I'll go see something and sometimes it's something i don't care about and it it turns out not to be very good but a lot of times it'll be something i might not have ever seen and it turns out to be really good movie well i generally don't go to movies and it's because i do load the multiplexes and I don't like a lot of the movies that are being made right now. And even the ones that I end up liking, I'm perfectly happy catching on a streamer. To me, sitting in those multiplexes is just not the experience that I grew up loving. And I hate the whole thing from the 20 minutes of pre-show commercials. Well, that, that they show a half hour. And so I always like it. it I know that it's going to be a half hour of, of uh, commercials beforehand. So I, I know I can come in late if, if, if I have to, you know, what's great is sometimes, sometimes if the commercials before the movie are long enough, you can get in a movie and before your movie, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. I, I do a lot of that on my, on my, you know, I watch something well, really like I watch star Wars on my, on my phone. Mm-hmm. Well, like, when I'm they, figuring you know, out what movies thing. to see, I'll know like, Oh, this one's, it says it starts at two and the other one's, ends at 205 but i'll have a half hour so i know i'm not actually gonna miss it let me watch the beginning of this film right uh, when, 
we all worked at the movie theater just sort of at the same time, but they used to line them up. It was a horribly hot day. And um, this woman walks in and she says, I'm here with my, my good friend and she's older than me. And can we sit inside? So I said, yes. Yeah. So I put them down in the steps because when Catherine Hepburn tells you her old friend wants to sit down in the movie theater, goes, do I? You say yes. And the assistant manager had no idea who she was and told her to leave. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't do that. The you name of the that. assistant manager? Yeah. yeah they, huh? The name of you? I don't remember, but okay. he was the guy who was a lot of problems. And she smacked him. And I was like, he threw her out. He said, you're going to wait on that line. You're not getting here. And I don't want to ever see her, you know, until the, until the show breaks. And um, so I went around and got her from the back and I put her in the theater you know, because the, the movie had ended by that point and we weren't ready to let her in. So I let them in. But I said to the guy later, I said, dude, you got smacked by Catherine Hepburn. She's like a five-time Academy Award nominated actress. It's like the big deal, man. He's like, who cares? And I was like, hmm, he's in the wrong business. Like It was Frank LaBianco, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, but it's like, why are you doing this job? Right. That's what those beautiful theaters were about. That's what working at, at you know, for Rugoff and for your, I guess your, your uncle was a movie guy and, you know, in the theaters. And that was like your late uncle. I'm sorry. And that was the thing. These guys were, they were, you know, it's like the guy shoveling shit behind the elephant. Yeah. But I'm in show business, you know? So every single person, the candy girls, they worked in the movie business. You know, we all felt like we worked in the movie business. I, I became a projectionist for a brief period of time. And I made this jump from uh, from projectionist to camera operator at, in IATSE. And it was like, it was like kind of monumental, right? Like I did this thing, but truth be told, I probably was, I became a projectionist because it was the only way I could figure out how I was going to get in the union to actually do anything I wanted to do. But I could only have done that in the movie theater when we were coming up. But right. what you want, I, I I think you became a projectionist to torture the puppet. I think that's right. Yeah, I th I think uh, <laughs> there's very few jobs in the movie industry that allow that you privacy. And I think and you, is, I think you found it torturing well, the puppet. Well, they made me do they made me do vacation replacement. So I worked in all the really, I mean, like the Adonis Theater was gorgeous and had cherubs everywhere. It's the, they use it as a background in the Madonna sex book, but the projectionist was like, okay, whatever you do, don't look in the audience. I go, what do you mean? So he takes me to the booth <laughs> we're up in the booth and it's like playboy centerfolds are plastered and like it, they get like everywhere. There's naked women everywhere. Don't look in the audience. Okay. Whatever you do, just don't do it. You can look at the picture, but I wouldn't. Right. But look, so of course the first day I had a flashlight, you know, I'm looking down in the audience. I'm going, Oh my God. Audience screen, audience screen. Is this like this every night? And the woman who was like the cashier candy person, because they had candy there, but it was like 40 years old. It was all, it was like Necco wafers and you know, things that you don't see that often anymore. And um, it's just like, no one buys candy, but we have to have it. Right. We have to have it. So I do both jobs. 
I said, but is what's going on in there now what always happens? She goes, well, I don't really know, but I assume so. I said, what do you mean? She goes, oh, we find all kinds of wonderful things afterwards. You know, like what? Wallets, you know, like pictures of the guy's kids, you know, like they found a wedding ring in there, you know, like, and the guy came in like all nervous. Um, I was with a friend, you know, like he didn't happen to find, and the girl went, a wedding ring. He was like, yes, here, let's see which one of these is yours. <laughs> you know, because it was the early 80s. It was pretty wild. But, you know, those beautiful palaces to show one movie at a time. Oh, and we still had the studios in Manhattan then. We had single screens and even, even twins were still great. Exactly. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, the cinema one and two is now the cinema one, two, and three. Cinema one, two, third Avenue. At least it's still got some of the ambience preserved upstairs. It's, it's recognizable. Now, did, where they built the, the third theater was in the backstage area of the cinema one. They kind of reconfigured it all. But I cannot tell you how many nights I slept in that backstage area. We had a we had we had a couch back there, and that's where all the boxes with the letters. Yep. Were, because you used to have to put the letters up, but they didn't, wasn't like a printed sheet you stick in there like they do now. Uh good times. Good times. Good times. Neil, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut you some slack. All right, I was gonna that. show you just uh, real quick. This is the Coolidge Corner Theater. Uh, the theater is talking about. It. It's very cool. In Brookline. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Look at that. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I go up there, do midnight movies. They show other movies too, but I do the midnight movies. And um, and Halloween, they do a 12 hour marathon from midnight till noon the next day, which is a very fun time. And then oh, that's they, awesome. they take a big picture of everyone seats? survives. How the are the seats? Are the seats comfortable? They, they that is the one thing they actually did improve on that's not uh, the original of the seats and it is much more comfortable than when I first started to go. We used to we used to live in Maine for part of the year and in Maine uh, we used to go to a theater called the Criterion, which was one of those theaters where they get a different movie every night, and it was built in like 1916, and it was the same seats. And it was like, if you remember your auditorium in grade school, it was like that, <laughs> yeah. but it had like a piece of cloth over the, <laughs> over the wooden part. Yeah. And they were when so I... uncomfortable, especially if it was like a really long movie. You know? was like, yeah. Oh, my ass hurts. I almost took a job at one of those theaters. Really? One of those vacation resort main theaters where you make up the, a print every day and there's a new film and only two people run it. And, uh, Something came up so that I couldn't do it, but it would have been an experience. It was a mother, a mother and son ran the theater, and the mother's friend would come in and do the candy. And it was a different movie every night. It was it was great because we would go to the movies like four times a week, but yeah, it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh when they did the 50th anniversary for 2001 and i was there there's a much older guy was sitting next to me and he told me he was at that same theater when it when the movie uh released originally and i was like that's for that's pretty wild and he had to come and watch it at the same theater for the 50th anniversary that's, that's cool. very cool wow yeah. so he's still alive too Probably. yeah 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 maybe oh he was at the time yeah this is a few years this is pre-pandemic but he was then he was, it was it was a great time but yeah, I think uh, seeing on the big screen is the best way to see any movie. Yep. No, I. 
I, I I've just seen 2001 three times on the theater, and each time was a new restoration. How did you like the, new, the last one? I have to say my favorite version is the one that I watched on my laptop, which was Steven Soderbergh's experimental cut where he cut it Very down to cool. 100 minutes. I loved it. Very cool. I mean, I've always loved the experience, uh, but uh, I enjoyed seeing somebody cut it down to 100 minutes. Yeah. Greg, you and I went to the sequel. We we, we watched the sequel oh, with uh, 2000. Yeah, 2010. Um, <laughs> and uh, and as I as like, I recall, Lake, he's still alive. <laughs> yeah. Kira Lake, not gone tomorrow. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, Greg, you were like, you were like, this is a much better movie than 2001. There are characters here. <laughs> well, well, you well know, Robert, I have to say, as I, I've said this on Neil's show in the past, that I saw every great horror film of the 80s when it came out, and I never liked any of them the first time. It's only oh, through repeated yes. viewings. Yeah. And I've come to, to love them and respect them. But I, I, I almost. I hear that. you got to see a movie twice before you see it at all. <laughs> yeah, I've heard That's that. Joe yeah. Braderman yeah. said. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, when you sure. mentioned uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that same theater I mentioned, I saw a, a, it was a pretty bad print, 35 millimeter print there. But it actually added to it, and then I saw it at the same theater when they restored it, and it looked great. But it, re I thought it was much worse than than the bad print because everything was very bright, and actually, I think it took away from the movie. Not all movies are like that, but uh, that one in particular I thought worked better. On yeah, like, I don't think every film needs the deluxe ultra H four K ten thousand treatment where you see the warts and yeah, you know, I like some, I like a little grime. A little shutter yeah and that movie yeah. in particular it definitely works with the well, grime because it have is, you guys noticed this when you're watching a movie today if it's shot digitally have you noticed just how bad people's skin is oh yeah like you're going yeah. wow look at the zits i and never they, noticed that i've seen this movie 15 times and i never noticed this it the makeup artists have not figured it out yet they've not quite they can't they've not quite the figured out digital resolution is so great i mean the things we used to do to make women look pleasant we would put some stocking you had to buy like like a fojal a french stocking that cost you like 200 dollars. but you're only cutting off little bits and you'd stick it on the very back of the lens so that would just soften them and the film would soften them further so you wouldn't notice these imperfections and now those cameras the the, the yeah. this 8k image is so crystal sharp you know, you could probably focus it on your blood vessels and you could see them. And it's just, it's too much. And so now makeup there's a more necessary now than it's been for a long time. What is makeup? makeup. Yeah. Oh, so important. And now they do it. They have, uh, they introduce uh, the airbrush for makeup, which is pretty spectacular. You know, they can come up with all these looks that they just spray on the actress so that it's dry when they're done. You know, they're ready to go. Like mm -hmm. they do a little done. Go. Moisten. We've come a long way since the oatmeal days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I brought Robert to Buffalo to shoot Slime City Massacre in 2010, I didn't pay to have a makeup artist because I just didn't have it in the budget. And Brooke Lewis was Robert's co-star in those flashback scenes. And she was like, uh, I will pay for a makeup artist because I know what the this these HD cameras do when they zoom in on the pores and and I'm not going to look like that. And she was right. So she was the one person on the film who, who had a makeup artist and she looks damn good in the movie. Mm -hmm. Not right. that anyone else looks bad because of the fancy cameras, but 
Uh, she well, knew what she was talking about. Men can handle that, you know, looking rugged, looking raw, much easier. Looking I did chorus. a music video, and a, the, it was a girl singer, and she said, I don't want any makeup. I said, but I have to put makeup on you. And she said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm shooting in very low light because I'm doing rear screen projection, and I need your face to reflect. And your skin doesn't reflect as much, so I, I, need, a, I need an image. So we put makeup on her. I did one take with the makeup, and then she got so furious, she wiped it all off. And so I cut the music video, and she comes in to look at it, and she's looking at it. She goes, why do I look sick? And I'm like, because she wiped the makeup off on you. I wasn't making you look sexy. I was just making you look like you're alive. You know, like, look at the drummer. Look how good he looks. And the bass player and the guitar, they all look great, and you look sick. That's what happens. You need to you need to have it. But but now, you know, there's a whole new class of engineer who does, you know, who, after you shoot the film, the, you know, the shading grading gets done and they change the colors and they pump your blue eyes so they're really blue. But you notice how blue everybody's eyes are? There's mm -hmm. a guy whose job that is, you know, the colorist. And he's and they come in and they do all this stuff. It's wild. But they're losing, you know, right now we're in a technology period where the story is at risk to what they can do well they'll always come back to story though always they have to yeah there's just nothing to keep people interested otherwise i hired a colorist for guns of eden for the first time it was a guy who would come out to my festival a couple of years before he impressed me and it was one of the best things i did and what he did besides giving it sort of a 70s look is you know we shot this film in the summer but we were still losing the light at the end of every day. And the film takes place in one day. And yet we shot for 15 days. So there's 15 scenes where we're shooting in magic hour. And he was able to take the finished film and figure out what the hours were of each scene. And it's beautifully consistent as wow. the lighting changes to get, to get us where, where we end up. That's beautiful. That's great. Really impressive. That's very impressive. Yeah. And where can you see Guns of Eden? Well, you can see it on Amazon. $3.99 to rent or $7.99 to buy as a download. A bargain. A bargain. Google Play. Uh, all the usual suspects, but not on Voodoo for some reason. And I'm not sure what the story is there. Screw Voodoo. Who cares? <laughs> we don't Voodoo. Well, they yeah. rejected Ooh. my credit card last time I tried to rent on them. So I agree. Hey. Mm. <laughs> done. I'm done with them. I don't have them and I'm done with them. Don't have them. Don't want them. Don't want them. Definitely. <laughs> don't want them. That's how it goes with me. They got one strike. That's it. Hey, I'm the kind of guy, you know. Tell you me know, about it. I know you. That's just how I am. that guy. <laughs> but that's right. All right. Well, Greg, you have George's number now, so you can uh, you can call him up in the future. To, well, to we get Facebook message a lot, but right, uh, right. yeah, we, we have things well. to discuss. Things, things, talking stuff. <laughs> it happens. Now we got a cell phone, so that's good. Robert, I, I haven't mailed it yet. Oh, but this is your Slime City action figure. That is awesome. Woo! That I will be sending to you. It's that is awesome. so awesome. The perfect Christmas gift. Needs right. no wrapping. <laughs> It'll come in time for Valentine's Day, but it's a Christmas present. <laughs> Fantastic. That's awesome. That that's is very awesome. cool. Well, where does uh are those for sale too, or is that just one for a guy? You know, it's a one-off. A guy did it and he shared it. Uh, I guess with my Instagram, which my wife and daughter run, because I 
don't understand Instagram. And I said, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, tell him I, I, I want to buy it. So no, he'll give it to you for free. I said, well, I need a second one because I have to get one for Robert. So I, I paid a little bit, but still a bargain. Bargain. It's thinking awesome. of me. That's awesome. Where, where, did, where was he? This guy, where'd he make him from? Oh, I, I have no idea what the details are, but he, he does them for all the movies he loves. So he's got a whole series of characters. Fantastic. That's awesome. All right. Well, this has been awesome. And it's a little Thank over you so hour. much. Yeah, it's a little a bit. Little a little over bit. two <laughs> hours. <laughs> we gave you a bonus half hour for the DVD. All right, very good. good. This yeah. this uh this this show is longer than uh George can tolerate. <laughs> He's like oh, 90, minute, my, 90 minutes, 90 minutes. That's an interview. That could be three hours, but he's movies. sitting in his special chair. He's okay. <laughs> I am. I'm in my special chair. <laughs> he looks very comfortable. Yeah. The story of a special chair. Yeah. It's <laughs> not Christmas. my special chair. It's we we had an apartment we rented, and when they moved to California, he said, Do you want this, you know, twelve hundred dollar Aeron chair? I'm just gonna throw it out. And I'm like, Yeah, no, you can bring it up to my office. Help me out here. <laughs> Perfect. Neil, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, and thanks for bringing the holiday to us. Yeah, listen to this. Look forward to the return of Troy. Yeah, he'll be back next week. Uh, I always miss him. Yeah, he's uh, probably the only person who asks about him, and I always miss him. Oh, people, people like (laughs) everybody asks about Troy. I have no idea who he is, but I ask. He's my brother and co-host during the show. But excellent. Yeah. Yeah, he's working weird hours currently, uh, but he'll be back to his normal schedule and be back on the show next week. Good. Excellent. Gentlemen, great seeing you both. Great seeing you too, Greg, George. Wonderful. Robert, we're running out of movies to do uh, reunions on Neil's show for. That's true. That's true. (laughs) It's the Undying Love reunion. We've got Undying Love. We've got to do that. Excellent. I, I didn't have a cell phone, so. (laughs) (laughs) are we just talking about theaters next time we'll figure something out (laughs) (laughs) thank you to everybody who listened yes thank you all and and the and the contributions were much appreciated yeah it's very fun it's very Mm -hmm. fun yeah thanks for uh for for a couple bucks from people too that was cool yay keep (laughs) donating and practicing all right. So uh, this is a new park. Uh, I'm going to have music of the month here. So I'm going to play us out with some music. You guys can say for it. You don't have to. But uh, Theophobia, they sent in a song for this one. It is, uh, Will You Still Love Me When I'm Dead? And I thought it was fitting for this show. Oh. <laughs> so Probably. Uh, I'll uh, get this ready and we'll play us out.
said, are you okay? And you said, what did I say? I tried to say you were right, but you had faded away You left a note with a Thank you. Thank Good night, you. everyone. Good night. Great to see you. Yep. Good night. Bye. Good Take care, guys. I'm leaving.